it's something that you can, and I can tell by your face, you can believe. Yes. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's something that absolutely could be true, given the history of our country. Now, see, this one's sick. What's cooking, everybody? I am joined in the bunker today by Mr. Terrence Jones, also known as one of the originals of this podcast, along with Sidney DiBernardo. And I say that because Terrence was episode number 10, and I launched September 15th, 2020 with 10 episodes, so he was one of those. And he was the first guy who came in here and really got the wheels turning on the long-form conversational podcast that I was always dreaming of going to. And so without him and without that episode, because it was very, very important, I don't know if we'd be here today. Now, this time around, I actually know what I'm doing, and I didn't have to rely on him putting on an absolute show 24-7 for – not 24-7, but for the entirety of the conversation. And so it was nice and and comfortable and – It was just an amazing, amazing follow-up. This conversation went all over the place. Terrence told a lot of amazing stories. I'm not even going to get into his background. You can read the bio, but this dude's the best. Walks the talk, sees the nuance in situations, and somebody I've known forever who's just just an amazing, amazing guy. So you're going to enjoy this one straight up. Like I promise you, you will enjoy it. Now, if you have not used the link in my description along with the code TRENDIFIER at checkout to get $100 off either your 8 Sleep Pod Pro mattress or 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover, check it out. As I say every week, I will focus on the cover because it comes in queen or king sizes and it goes right on top of your existing mattress and it's half the price of the Pod Pro mattress and does all the same things as 8 Sleep's main product, which is the mattress. And what that is, is they use 8 Sleep's proprietary technology to wire into, in this case, the cover and optimize your sleep around you for the night such that when you wake up in the morning, You will feel like you slept eight hours, even if the clock says you slept six. There's a lot of different tech and and scientific things that go into this around sleep stages and body temperature and REM and stuff like that that I'm unqualified to talk about. But trust me, the product is incredible, and it is an absolute game changer because sleep is absolutely paramount to our health, and most of us don't do it correctly despite the fact that we all have to do it. So use that link in my description along with the code TRENDIFIER at checkout. That's T-R-E-N-D. I-F-I-E-R, and you will get $100 off the 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover. And again, if you want to go for the full mattress, that is also $100 off there. So you guys won't regret it, and check it out. Anyway, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And if you're on YouTube right now, hit that subscribe button, hit that bell button, and leave a like and comment on the video if you would, please. Now, a little announcement here. And a big thank you to you guys. This past week, we peaked at number 29 in the United States of America on the Apple Podcast Personal Journals chart. So for those of you who don't know what that means, there are 10 or I think like 15 categories of podcasts that you can be in. So our category is society and culture. And within those categories, there's probably a total across all of them of maybe like 50 or 60 subcategories. One of those is personal journals, which I think is a pretty big one, and we were number 29. So I've been telling you that I've been blown away by how the audio 
side of this has grown consistently since day one of this podcast, and that is proof right there. So thank you to all of you who have been word of mouth sharing this thing and supporting. It's incredible. I love the community that's being built. I'm going to try to figure out some more ways to get everyone involved together. Stay tuned there. But also, if anyone has advice on how to grow YouTube, I am all ears. I post on YouTube every single day for the first five months of the year, and I feel very good about the content and the style and what I've been able to do there because I've also tested some of that content on other platforms and done well. But I'm pretty clueless on how to generate engagement like on the YouTube platform. No matter what I've studied, I'm not good at it. So if anyone has advice on that, once again, would love to hear it. And eventually we'll catch that up. I'm I'm grateful the audio has been a consistent great spot literally since this podcast began. And so that stayed the same and eventually YouTube will get there. So to all of you who have supported that, once again, thank you. Thank you to all the people on TikTok who have found the podcast and supported there. I've never asked for it, so that makes it even more amazing that all the shares you guys give. I know sometimes it's randos giving shares too who don't follow me or really don't know who I am, but there have to be a lot of you in the following who continue to share the clips from TikTok and, and spread them around and comment and, and make them go. So thank you to all of you. It's it's amazing. And what we've been able to do here early on is, I mean, I, I couldn't do it without you. So I know I say that a lot, but I'm never going to tire from saying that. It is the entire truth, and I really, really appreciate all you guys. That said, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory, and this is Trendify. Let's go. This is one of the great questions in our culture. Where is the news? You're giving opinions and calling them facts. Everyone understands this, but few seem to do it. Like the status quo. Start asking questions. Like, and not you see what I'm saying? Like, I see what you're time. saying. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of pushback because it, it, I look at it as a, a chicken and the egg argument where. I don't know that it's necessarily this uh, the lawyers that are at fault in, in this risk assessment as much as human nature and mm. greed, right? And you see it all the time with like um, accidents. Like, I'll never forget, um, I got into a car accident um, in Baltimore, and I was uh, coming down, I was right pretty much on my college campus. It's a bad start. Yeah. Baltimore car accident. Yeah, I know. Uh-oh. With a cop. How about that? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, I got to hear this one. So, I'm in my car, um, and there's a CVS here. Uh, I'm in the right lane. I'm going to make a right. Um, and, uh, there's a huge pothole right here. And so I come into the left lane. I'm young and dumb. I know now that this was not a smart move. That, you were that, young and dumb. Yeah, no, yeah, you were. I was, Go I on. was, I know you would never tell when you were telling that story about that guy and how he was, a, I won't say who his name is to, to, to not out him, but how he was a savage in college. Oh, I yeah. just start thinking about all my college stories and, <laughs> and how I had to bury my alter ego, uh, and, and leave him in college. I promised my fiance that, you know, that, that stage was behind me. But uh, so there's a pothole in the in this in this right lane. So I'm I go around in the left, and then I'm gonna make a right turn into the CVS, which is on the right hand side. And in the short time that I go to the middle lane and come back around, this cop comes speeding up behind. Oh, the cop hit you! And so technically, I hit the cop because I'm making a, I'm making a right hand turn from the middle lane, and he's <laughs> he has the right away in the right lane. 
And so he slams on his brake and goes up onto the uh, up onto the sidewalk, and I hit my brake. And I kid you not, and for the viewers, you'll be able to see my hands and what I'm doing. But I kid you not, I literally nicked him. Like, like my head didn't jerk. None of that. Very. I nicked him. There was no damage. So when you hit a cop, they have to, an investigation unit come out. Oh uh, I have to sit there for hours because we're basically on on camp on uh, on campus. We had campus security there, and I was glad campus security there because they were kind of have my back. Like mm. it, it felt good to like have somebody on your side because I, I there was like three maybe four cop cars that came and then the investigation unit who's there taking pictures of the whole thing. Um, no damage to my car. The only damage to his car was that I'm guessing that what I hit was his, uh, whatever light you call that you know how they have like that spotlight on the side some of the cop cars oh the yes ones they have that like light on the about. side like that the light, fords would have yeah, that yeah yeah that light was a little crooked or whatever pretty much no damage i'm thinking okay they'll you know they'll do whatever they do reckless like i'm thinking i'm gonna get a ticket or whatever take the badge number down get all that stuff and uh, a few months later I get a piece of uh, a piece of mail, and it's like, oh yeah, you're being sued. This officer hasn't been working because he Come had a on. shoulder injury. Uh, yeah, I kid you not. And he turned it into this big thing. He stopped going to work. He went to physical therapy. He he his shoulder was messed up. All this stuff. I had five passengers in my car. None of us even even had whiplash. Uh, the 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 accent was so small. But I I, I tell that story to say that like. Nowadays, you hear stories like that all the time. I heard another story where uh, a neighbor of mine, a close friend of mine's parent, uh, was going to drop off a Christmas gift at her neighbor's house, slipped on her neighbor's sidewalk, and sued her neighbor. Come on. Her neighbor, who she had known for a long period of time because she didn't uh, she didn't uh, put salt out. And, and so uh, she was liable or whatever. And, and she won that case. I agree with your pushback. And I'm going to push back to your pushback okay. now with a All new right. point I All wasn't right. even thinking of. I should have been thinking about this out front. You still need a lawyer on the other side of that case. Yeah. And that's... Well, I think, technically you don't, but I hear, I hear what you're saying. You're, right. you're, you're going you're gonna to maximize your value by having a lawyer. Correct. 100%. Correct. 100%. So at some point, like if it goes to, if it goes to court, there needs to be someone that, that, that's going to be like in that case, my client walked on top of the sidewalk. Yeah, it was not, yeah. there was no salt. It was a dangerous zone. That's right. She can never work again. Her daughter cries at night, you know, and it's like, okay, dude, like we get it. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, not calling out Mike Spear here. But <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I think I know that voice. I think I know it. <laughs> the, but the side note real quick, the best was when he was intern, like his dad really made him work like a dog which, okay. which is great great dad to have but he was interning i think when he was like a freshman and people would call up the office and, and he would be like, like he'd be at the front desk be like yeah spear spear and, and whatever it's called sure. and um he, he would answer the phone and these people would be talking about like their latest injury or something and they would just hear like mike from the front desk be like no no, no ho hold on a minute you mean to tell me you have lived at this house for 25 years and you only just noticed the crack of the foundation yesterday? Oh, 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 you only just noticed? Okay. All right. Yeah, I don't think there's a case. Like you would call up. And so then like some of the other lawyers are coming in and they're like, um, Mike, that that's a potential client. So next time yeah yeah that was the worst I was thinking, as soon as you said that i was thinking like that's a lot of power to give a freshman yeah to be honest like it's i mean that's a lot of trust but i mean i'm sure he knows the world i'm sure he, he's been studying under his dad for a while yeah so. yeah and, and not not talking shit on him at all i mean i 
his cases that because he you know he's a full-blown trial attorney he, sure he went right into it he's killing it but his cases that he's told me about are, are pretty absurd mm -hmm. i mean they're like crazy shit so when i when i see that it makes me feel better about things but i always do remember there are people out there just just like you said human nature yeah. they're looking for you know the lawyers got to get paid too mm -hmm. and so they're looking at cases that's how you hear remember like the one we were growing up and we'd hear about the people suing Wawa for a pickle or not Wawa McDonald's yeah, for like yeah, a pickle yeah, or and the, it's, the coffee's too hot and it's like to me I, I actually do like it when judges will I don't know what the terms are so I won't try to guess yeah, but yeah. like when judges admonish like have a, pen, a penalty yeah, yeah yeah and then punish attorneys for taking cases and that is a little bit of a slippery slope sure certainly but like sometimes it's so obvious like you know it's like QAnon obvious mm -hmm. and it's like uh, okay <laughs> that's, that's yeah, a little too far yeah you shouldn't be doing that um, it's hard it's a hard and it's a hard thing and it's even harder when you try to go uh, private right like and you have like a small mm -hmm. thing because you almost you don't have to take every case but like you got bills to pay and if you're not taking cases and you're super selective it's a doggy dog world and it's an oversaturated field realistically um i heard a statistic the other day and i didn't have a chance to fact check it but it came from a credible source um who said that uh they were looking at i want to say it was a it was a law school in florida and that like uh the majority of students were coming out of this law school with over uh you know six figures in debt and the average that they were making coming out was like 60 grand or something something like, or like 30 like yeah it was like it was like nothing wait now that's interesting let's take a sidebar and I, and we should we should fact check it and, and look it up but i know i actually i he, he did tell me where he got the article from so i know it's real i just don't remember the numbers when you're talking next i'll pull that up yeah. so I'll, I'll check that but either way even if the numbers are a little off it wouldn't surprise me if there's a story there that is absolutely true i'll take it at, at face value that there are people coming out of law school where, as you said, they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go mm -hmm. and they're making a lot less and they're sinking. That's interesting, though, because the whole concept, like when I studied this for the first podcast, mm -hmm. when I was mm -hmm. releasing like the solo ones, one of the data points that made me feel like one of the only ones that I was like, OK, that's not the worst thing in the world with the college debt mm -hmm. and the student loan debt was when I looked at some of the doctor and lawyer numbers. And their numbers were high, but there was also a lot of data to support that a lot of them, a lot of them, not all of them, were able to have much better means to pay that off because they were getting a serious, serious degree. Right. That said, it's still the law of supply and demand with mm -hmm. stuff. And it's also like choice in your career. Do sure. you go on your own? Do you go to the big – do you sell out to the biggest firm? That's me. Or, you know, well, no. I'm, I'm saying like the people that, that just pick out like literally like the three names in, in New York City and say right, I'm going right, to go for right, that. Right, you know right, what right. I mean? I and hear it's, you. It's not that they're a sellout, but you know what I mean. I hear you. Right? So – And that's the narrative for sure. I mean I knew what I was getting myself into. And and if you want, we can, we can get into how I made that decision because as you know, I wanted to be a public defender when I went to law school and that's where I thought I was going to end up and obviously I didn't so we can talk about that but no a hundred percent that's the narrative I I think that you know these people coming out though it's another question about education and about the I don't know the word I'm thinking of here but like the the arbitrary barrier mm -hmm. that we should have to it so like let's go back to college for a second there were, if I remember the numbers correctly, I'm going to be in the ballpark if they're not 100% correct, fact check me. But mm -hmm. there were around just beneath 20 million college students as of like 2017, 2018 okay. when I did that data last year. And 
of that number, I can't tell you what the optimal number of kids is that should be in college at a given time in this country. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's nine. Maybe it's 10. Sure. Maybe it's 11. It's not for me to say. It's not like draw this line right here. Sure. But the data does support that an overwhelming number of those kids did not need to go to college because it's not going to help them, whether it's their major or the competition of the major they choose. And so now the reason I bring that in is because taking it up to like law and medicine, there is a high barrier of entry to get into these schools, but there's still a list of schools, right? Right. So you went to a good school. Some people go to a shitty school, Mm -hmm. but the school charges them a significant amount of money, not far off like what you're paying to go to Temple and stuff. And so I look at that and I'm like, should we have higher standards and i don't know if it's like the government running it or something like that never ends well but who's gonna do it like right. who's gonna say like all right below this no one's going to a school because the school's gonna suck and they're gonna pay too much money and they're gonna be sinking in debt right right it's it's a very interesting thing to, to talk about and to think about and when you think about the disparity in pay it gets even more interesting and the reason i say that is because uh, yeah, what do you mean uh, so, uh, w- w- well, there's a bunch of disparities in pay, but what I was thinking about in- is that I actually read an article while I was at my firm that um, there are a few law uh, law firms out there that are paying students right out of law school their very first year $200,000 a year in salary. I believe that. And if you look at the opposite end of that spectrum, I'm sure if you go to certain small counties in America and look at what their public defenders are making, it's probably and and, and again, I don't I didn't look this up, but I would not be surprised if you're looking at thirty or forty thousand dollars. That's a oh, huge yeah. that's a huge disparity um between those two and both and, and, and you could have two people who go into law school and pay the same amount and, and go to the exact same law school and one person has a perception where they want to be helping out communities and doing public interest work and they're getting paid terrible money to do it and then you have this other student who's going to be ambitious and go to the top top uh, law firm in their state or their city and they're making a, a gross amount of money straight out of out of school and there's the one thing we have to remember is there are always going to be some winners and losers right always it's not like we can say let's let's get everyone in a circle everyone's gonna win there's always gonna be people that lose where i get concerned is when a lot of people are losing yeah yeah and and i can tell like okay statistically not all of them are bad not all of them are don't have abilities and like obviously the main example is with college debt and i think that's because it's a lower form of education Mm -hmm. than say like law school and it's also a bigger population and also a lot more choices of major that can fuck you up or make you right right but it the, the thing does still apply if i'm seeing numbers where it's like well you know we had 3,000 graduates from university of whatever school in florida this year and 1,500 of them are going to be underwater for the next 10 years. Yeah. It would That's be, an issue. It would be interesting, and, and I say this as a joke, but but it goes to your point. It would be interesting if we ran law schools the way that soccer teams are run, where if you don't get a certain amount of people that pass the bar, you get relegated. And you're, and you're no longer a law school. If, you're you're, if your percentage of, of pass rate for people who pass the bar their first or second time and and you're under 50%, you're out of here. I am a thousand percent behind <laughs> I, I that. I can see where your logic is going. I did not think of that. That is great. 
that is but again it would go to who regulates that right who regulates that but if you could create a set line mm-hmm. right then mm-hmm. it's not you're not putting as much faith in the regulator so mm-hmm. to speak you're more putting the faith in well either either hit that number or you don't right you know which is kind of like sometimes we lose that in society now but i did pull up a source right there this wasn't exactly what you were looking for okay. some of this stuff when it's really exact it's hard to get in real time but this article is supporting your your point with yeah, Other I actually pl- think that might be it. The University well, yeah, of Miami. University of Miami's there, but there were schools outside of Florida too. Okay. And they were the basis of it. I'm not going to read through all of it, but the basis of it is that people were leaving school in high percentages. But it's underwater. that six figures, you know, they're a six figure in debt if you go up a little higher. Yep. And they're making, you know, 60 grand. Yep. I mean, it's it's unfortunate. Borrowed median of $163,000. And like the other thing people don't look at with this stuff and Luckily, I had my my finance background to like learn this stuff and really understand. Once I would see it paid out, which mm-hmm. is really how you learn it. But like they, you know, even if it's a law school student who's twenty two, same difference to me. Like they put this paper in front of an eighteen year old, seventeen year old going to college, or a law student mm-hmm. who's just looking to do their next thing, and they go, "Oh yeah, you know, don't don't worry about that six and a half compounding rate of return." And it's like, or rate of return compounding like on your debt, right? People don't think about what that number does, and then God forbid you fall behind. It is, it's a sinking, it's a sinking ship. One hundred percent. And then you've got the opposite end of the spectrum, and I've seen this in some of my close friends um, of people who are just absolutely terrified of loans, and they put themselves at a much, a significantly worse financial position because they're like, I'm not taking out any loans. And it's like they graduate and their loans are super low, but they have no savings account. They're not investing in anything. They've got no passive incomes. They've got nothing. You know what I mean? And and, and that's a really scary place to be because you're one injury away from being completely bankrupt and having nothing. Um, that's terrifying. And, and and no one and and that financial literacy component is something that you know, we, I think we do as a society need to focus on because there is kind of a medium place to be and there is a, a large gap of information that a large majority of people probably don't have. Um, I was lucky enough to kind of be taught some of these things at a very young age between my stepfather and my mother. They kind of really schooled me on the, the you know, the idea of like every paycheck you should be paying yourself first, right? And like having a savings account and taking on a healthy amount of loans and how you can use your loans and, and, and debt in order to increase your credit. Um, so I, ha- I didn't, I mean, I'm no expert by any means. That's awesome. Um, but at a very young age, working at Rita's Water Ice for, the, for all the locals out there, I had those concepts instilled in me. Even um, every Christmas, my parents would take 50% of, uh, of my money and put it into an account. And then when I got to be 18, all of that money was mine. And then I got, I got to see it in real time. Like, wow, yeah. this is what it looks like to save. This is great. Look at this large pot of money that I now have for colleges that my parents basically showed me. Hey, you could, you could get this and much more. Let me teach you about investments. You're, you're raising another amazing point here, and it's – you know what? It's not something we've talked about a ton on this podcast. We've mm. talked about it a couple times, I think, but the lack of financial literacy in this country is astounding. It is. And I'll even call myself out when I left college and I went into finance. I got financially literate because I sank myself into every – is that right? Sank myself into? Yeah, I think sunk. So. No, I think, you, I think you're right. All right, we'll go with it. Anyway, I sank myself into all of the material there was, and I remember seeing stuff like things that should be very obvious to me, mm-hmm. especially now looking at it like, how the fuck didn't I know that? But I, I'd look at it and be like, oh, what's that? You know, 
oh, that's how that works. Right. And it's amazing to me because I know I wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. And now I, I think of a lot of people because I take that for granted because I worked in it every right. day. Like right. I had to deal with people with their money and everything. And I think about everyone who doesn't have these basic questions answered and they don't teach it to you in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, 100%. It's, it's, it's all really interesting. Um, what you said brought up a point, and now I'm I'm forgetting what I was going to say. It had to do with financial literacy and, and kind of getting on board. But yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough to have parents that kind of prioritized it. And that, and that's critical too, because like my grandma was someone who was so good at it, and I probably should have taken more from her. But you know, why why are some people great at it? It's it's because of their experience or like their parents and stuff. Mm. So like my grandma was a child of the Great Depression, right? She knows what it's like to have nothing. Right. She knows what it's like to have to count where every penny is. Mm -hmm. And so even though like over the years they made it and they did well, you know, she operates as if she is the poorest person on planet right. Earth. Right, right. You know, she's like good to charity and stuff like that. But then in her own life, she's like, I can't pot, unless it's like her hair. She can't spend on anything. Right, right, she's right, like, right. that pasta costs $3.07. I'm like, I don't fucking care. Just get the pasta. <laughs> yeah, but I hear you. It's, there is such a good baseline there. And, and I, I guess I also probably took that for granted because a lot of people, you know, even their grandparents or their parents or like your situation with your your mom and, and your stepdad teaching you, like a lot of people don't have that. And we we really got to work it into schools. Yeah. And I, I remember what I was going to say. It, it had to do with taxes. And so before going to law school, I worked as a case manager for people who were struggling with opioid addiction. And uh, as a case manager, you're not making a lot of money. So I didn't know you did that. Yeah. Yeah. Two years um, in Philadelphia, wow. I got to kind of restart like see my city in a different light. And this was at the height of the opioid epidemic. I mean, not that we're not still in the height of sure. the opioid mm -hmm. um, epidemic, but, um, and so uh, you, you're not getting paid a lot. And so, you know, taxes were whatever. I didn't really think about it too much. Um, and now working my first big boy job and getting paid, you know, a decent amount of money. When I got my first paycheck, I kid you not, I called the accounting company and was like, I don't think that this is right. I'm I'm missing money. I called my mentor and I was like, I, should I like? I feel like I'm being sh like shooken down or what, how how do you say that term? Like I feel like they're shaking me down right now. Like where's the rest of my paycheck? Here's here. I pulled out my uh, my offer letter. Here's the amount that you said you were gonna pay me. Here's the amount that you actually paid me. Where's the rest of my money? And uh, she broke it down. She kind of laughed at me a little bit. Um, and and <laughs> she's like, she's like, yeah, taxes. That's a real thing. You you There's gotta take that into. <laughs> There's Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. There's the federal government. There's Bernie Sanders. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, that's how taxes work. Okay. This whole conversation around it makes a lot more sense now. Um, but it, it, I mean, even that, that's something that I should have known off the bat, right? I, that's something. But I saw a number and I thought I was getting that number. And so when I didn't get that number, I was like, what the hell is going on here? Um, and it's a story that I'll probably get laughed at for a while. I, 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 I remember texting all of the other associates like, hey, did, you, did your check look a little funny? <laughs> <laughs> my check's looking a little funny how's your check looking have you ever seen those tiktoks of like the dads who will who will pick up their kid after they get their first paycheck from their first job no. and they're like open it up no. and the kid's like man we're going we're eating great tonight and then he opens it up and he's like what the fuck <laughs> and the dad's like told you yeah yeah but the, it's true it, like the one i always gamified it the one thing i would always look at is i'm like oh they're gonna give me money back at the end of the year though. right like oh like especially like if you're not rich like right, not killing right, it right, in a right. job you're gonna get money back yeah. so i'm like all right i'm yeah, up yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, like, a, I'm, gonna need I'm like i'm up i'm, I'm good but it is it like it's another thing that you don't think about 
like the minimum wage, which is somehow still seven dollars and twenty five cents, which is crazy. But Unbelievable. You, you don't think about how. Okay, well, if that was technically only six dollars because of the taxes or whatever it is, that you know, six dollars over three hours, eighteen seven twenty five over three hours, twenty one seventy five. Right. Add that up over a week. You know, that's a, that's that's a couple meals mm-hmm. right there for mm-hmm. someone who's literally operating below the poverty line, right, right. which is a crazy thing. But I I want to go back to that opioid thing. Mm-hmm. I did not. Maybe I did and I forgot, which maybe not. If that's the case, I'm sorry. But you've done so many different things. I've done a lot. I can I can run you down my track record. Just, uh, just we're gonna go through all of it. <laughs> all right, we're so, gonna go through all of it today. So uh, so right. So out of high school, I knew and I wrote my my like college letter on how like I I really liked um, helping people. I liked you know being there for others. I I care about my community. I care. I I, I recognize that I'm in a pos- the reason why I am where I am today is because I come from a family uh, uh, that's full. And, and I have an understanding of the privilege that I came into with, right? And I talked about that on the yes. podcast um, last time, and I'm very cognizant of that. Um, and so I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to be when I grow up? And I have no clue. You know, when you're 18, I could have, I literally could have done anything. And so uh, my stepmom's a doctor, so I'm like, okay, she helps people. She seems to like her job. She makes good money. I want to be a doctor. Um, so I went into school pre-med. And um, I quickly realized like, college biology and high school biology are not the same thing. No. Um, and so I switched from um, a bio major to bio psych with a I really want to focus on public health um, because this way I'm still looking at communities. I'm looking at problem solving and that's where I wanted to go. Um, so I actually did a, a program at Columbia University after I graduated um, for a summer. Um, and I was there summer 16. Um, it was a public health program. It was basically trying to make sure that minorities are starting to get into this field. Um, amazing program. Columbia was amazing. I never thought that I would like New York as a Philly guy myself, but I, I you know, Harlem has a culture that's so oh, unique. Yeah. Um, and I really did fall in love with Harlem. Um, and then after I finished that, I still didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. So I'd actually did a year of service through AmeriCorps. Um, I work with the um, Notre Dame volunteers. Um, and I basically was working with adults with HIV and AIDS. Um, and so just basically doing, making sure that at that time, I thought I wanted to potentially go into nutrition. That's what I wrote my paper on at Columbia um, and like food deserts, things like that, making sure that communities are eating healthy because, as you know, I like to cook. Like I love cooking. Love so cooking. I'm like, that's a perfect intersectionality. I get to cook. I get to try new recipes. I get to look at nutrition and make sure that communities can try to eat healthy on a budget. Right. And that because I, I think that that's an extreme pro- problem in America. Um, and so I got to kind of test some of that stuff out at, at, at the um, Don Miller House is what it's called in Baltimore. Um, and I got to, you know, make the meals for the residents, take them to their appointments, make sure that AIDS and HIV. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so these are adults who kind of live in this house. Um, and I was just trying to I noticed. So I had actually volunteered there for four years in undergrad and I got along well with the director and she was like, hey, I'd love to hire you full time. Um, or if you didn't want to do, you know commit to a full-time you could do a year through americorps and then maybe do a, a full-time afterwards so um i went there tried it out i i noticed that like during my four years i noticed that they kind of are very sedentary they kind of like have their own routine but they kind of stick to the house some of the residents definitely put on some some weight over the four years so i'm like okay what can we do let's try um doing outside activities let's try doing excursions let's go to the zoo let's get outside let's get walking i actually uh gave them my parents Wii. i was like my, my younger brother's not playing the Wii. let's play the Wii. they loved it we were playing tennis you know getting them active in creative ways um which was really fun 
And so then you're I'm like, what, like 21, 22 at that age. Yeah. 20. Yeah. 21. Yeah. That was Amazing. right after college. And so, um, um, I was like, okay, I could see myself doing public health. Let me, but I want to go back to Philly. You know, my end goal was always to be back in Philly. I'm really family oriented. So I was like, let me start looking for public health jobs in Philly. I ended up at Public Health Management Corporation, which is like, I think it's the largest nonprofit in Philadelphia. Um, and they have um, uh, a clinic called the Care Clinic on 12th and Callow Hill, which is a great service for um, low-income individuals. And they had this thing called the Center of Excellence, which was brand new. It literally had started three months before I started, um, where this um, this guy, Adam, had created this project, I guess, um, where he was going to try to get people who are addicted to opiates connected to different services. And so we were mm. basically, we were called community-based care managers or CB, um, what CBCMs, um, community-based care managers. And we basically were just making sure that we, at first we were going out into the community because we were new, nobody knew about us. So we're going into the worst parts of Philadelphia, trying to like ask people, Hey, are you looking to, to get clean? Are you looking to, um, get connected to, um, primary care? Do you have a doctor? Have you gone to a behavior health consultant um, and get, and trying to bring them in? We were giving them tokens and just trying to figure it all out. And and the, the most amazing thing, and I can tell you a little bit more about this if you're interested, was how little people knew. Like, like how, like, I remember sitting in on, um, like on Fridays, we would kind of have consultations with the whole team. So your doctors are there, your behavioral health consultants are there, your social workers are there, we're there, your case managers are there, the nutritionist is there. And they're like, okay, who has a patient that they think is kind of struggling and how can we help those patients? Um, or uh, who has a complex case? And so we were working with um, something called Suboxone and we were doing what's called medicated assistant treatment. So we were trying to help people who, who wanted to be helped um, um, switch from, let's say, heroin onto Suboxone, which is still a um, an opioid, but of a lesser degree. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. Yeah. okay. So that's so mainly what we were doing. Quickly. Because I don't want to get lost on on one point. Yeah, I wanted to ask about which is when you're walking up to people mm-hmm. to do this. What's your hit ratio? Like one out of twenty? Oh yeah, it's lo- it's really low. It's low. And, and, and in the beginning, it was even lower because we're the one thing that I had learned is that pe- uh, people who are addicted to opiates and are used to an area don't like leaving that area. Mm. And as a naive twenty two year old, I'm thinking like you're telling me you want to get help what's a what's a bus ride but for them and i'm also thinking like oh like you you're homeless so why not just be homeless over here but i don't think like that and and, and they shouldn't truthfully yeah. i mean i learned now like what we can what we perceive to be homelessness is not necessarily how they perceive it you know what i mean like mm. that is their home that is where they like to be that is where where they're most familiar and and there's nothing really wrong with that um but I, so it was probably less than 1 in 20 i mean we would get people who would come in try to box in one time and never come back and and it was very hard in the very beginning to figure out how we can get patients to come in because 12th and Cal Hill is not i mean it's not a great neighborhood by any stretch of the means but it's definitely not Kensington right and so right. um I mean, fast forward now, like they're, you know, plugged in with hospitals and we're getting referrals from all over the place. So we have a much bigger name. But when you're talking about the people you were going up to, though, who are addicted to opiates, is it pretty much largely heroin and then yeah. like maybe some Oxycontin? Yeah, yeah. Possibly. So the people we're going up to are almost all heroin. Okay. I mean, we would get and that was the most fascinating part for me about this job was how the opioid epidemic reaches 
every aspect of American culture. I got people who are working two jobs, who just got injured, hurt their wrists, start taking, you know, prescribed medication, really liked that feeling, really yeah. liked that and chased it all the way. I had people who have been addicted to heroin. Um, I got people who have been on methadone clean on methadone for 20 years, asking their methadone prescriber to bring them down on a lower dose and not having like success with it. Um, so I, I mean, I, I got to see everything in those two years. The suboxone mm-hmm. that you do with them though. Because it is still an opiate. Right. And I don't know much about it. But like when people are the most common way, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Mm -hmm. the most common way that people administer heroin is through a needle. Sure. So when they come in to your center, are they taking Suboxone through a needle as well? Orally. It's a pill. It's a pill. Yeah. Okay. And what are... Well, what is Suboxone used for, like as it's meant to be used? It's Yeah, it's basically to wean people off. I mean... Oh, that's it? Yeah. Yeah, that's its that is its purpose, as as I understand. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So they literally created this as like a okay, we're gonna take the temperature up to a five instead of a ten, mm-hmm. and then get people slowly off. Of right, it. right, and that was wow. the ideal. And and the, it's not new um, medicated assisted treatment. Methadone has been around for decades. Um, but the, the difference between methadone and suboxone and why people were really sub- excited about suboxone was because methadone was something that you had to come, it was heavily reg- regulated and it was something that you had to come in every single day. And so you've got people who are trying to get clean and trying to turn their lives around, trying to, um, get a job and, and provide for their family, but they have to go into a doc, uh, not a doctor's office, it's a clinic, but they have to go into a clinic every single day which can be taxing. And for some people, it really works. They really like the regiment na- nature of it. Okay, I wake up, take the bus, get my methadone, go to work, da 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 da, da. But some people, it, it didn't. And those people are who we really attracted because Suboxone you could get, and the way that we did it was, uh, let's see, so the, uh, we did dailies for a week, and then after the week, you got a week's worth. And then after a few weeks of doing one week's worth, you would get two weeks worth. And then you work yourself up to monthlies. So this way you only have to come in once a month. You have all of your medication, right? And so it was also interesting to see both sides where it's like, okay, on one hand, you definitely have people who are out here who are getting their Suboxone, staying high on heroin and selling it because it has a high street value. Um, and then you definitely have people who are um, getting it and um, you know taking more than they're supposed to and, and abusing it. But there are also... A lot of people, and I had a lot of people who wait. They really, can they can abuse it in the clinic. So not in. So you take it home. I mean, you just. I mean, um, you know, once when you're on your dailies, you you take your daily and you go about your day. When and you're you getting get it your to weeklies, for free. Um, I think so. Yeah, I think it's covered under. Okay. Uh, they have to have insurance. Um, and it's it's covered under insurance. And oh, so that's interesting. That was a okay. big part of our job was connecting them to insurance. If you didn't have insurance, we connect you to insurance. Switch your primary care over if you don't already have one. And and so it's a one stop shop. You go. I mean, homeless. I'm sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. a lot of homeless people don't have insurance. Correct. And and this is another dumb question to follow that up. But where, where the fuck are they getting their bills mailed to? You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, they could get PO boxes, or um, they could have it sent. I think they some people had it sent to the clinic. That stuff we mainly refer them to social work because it's a little bit more out of our hands. But that was the nice thing about our clinic is that we had every all of the resources that you could need, whether it be a nutritionist or whether it be a behavior health consultant, or if you need a referral to psychiatric care, we could get it for you. Um, so the people who are really seeking out that change. 
Um, and, and, and don't get me wrong. It's like any other addiction. You have people who do want to change and they fall off the horse and they get back on. I had patients who I wouldn't see for six months and then come back in. Um, I mean, you, you see it all. Um, and it's really fascinating because there, I got to do it at, at a time where it was t- highly talked about. And so I kind of got to see like people saying stuff and I'm like, you have no clue what you're talking about. Like you're talking about these people as if they're animals or as if they're other, but in reality, they're, they're your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, sure. um, your, your, your mother, your father, your daughter. Um, it, it was, it was unbelievable. One of the common tragic stories you hear is is the one you pointed out a few minutes ago where it's like someone had to get surgery on mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. and they gave them some kind of drug and then they liked it. They liked it too much and they went on and on and on. Yeah. A lot but of construction workers. <clears throat> I'll bet. Yeah. A lot I'll of construction bet. workers. Yeah. People are working hard labor jobs mm-hmm. where there's danger and, mm-hmm. you know, they hurt their shoulder, they sure. hurt their knee, stuff like that. But what about the people who were straight up homeless as well, like long term. And I'm sure some of those people ended up that way mm-hmm. as well. But, you know, the people who really didn't have anything, what was the most common link you saw to them starting to take the drug? Just literally like, I don't have anything to live for, so I think I'll try this? Or was it more nuanced? Yeah, I don't know what their motivation was. That's really what you're asking, right? Like what their motivation yeah. to, to get off of heroin? I mean, no, I no, think... No, 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 to get on it. To get on to Suboxone. No, no, no. At the beginning, like when they started. Oh, 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 to yeah. get on to, to get the on other the types of cases. I don't know that we ever really asked about how they started using drugs. We, we in our in mm. our intake, we would always ask how long you've been using drugs, but I don't really remember asking what made them turn to drugs. Um, that's it, yeah, and, and you know what? Not not to criticize you guys. That that's an oversight, though, and and I don't I don't think it's a question that gets asked a lot, but we just kind of assume. You know, in in low-income places or places of homelessness, urban areas, which are the most common place that what happens in other places, we just kind of assume, oh, that's that's what happens Mm -hmm, there. mm -hmm. And I think that that's that's not fair. Yeah. I think a lot of people – I don't know if it's like just a struggle with purpose or I'm sure that's some of it or it's like – you know, a lot of people – you you don't choose where you're born into. Mm -hmm, You know mm -hmm, what I mean? mm -hmm. And there's no no hope. And it's like, all right – you're 17, 18, 21, it could be 25, and it's like, well, I think I'll fucking try that. Yeah. I, look, I, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. It's not – I would never want to do that, but I also didn't grow up like that. Right. So who am I to say how I'd be thinking getting in my head? Right. You know what I mean? And I, and I think a lot of the – to me, a lot of the quote-unquote – not not the war on drugs that that thing's a fucking farce but i mean like the the whole battle back against drug addiction i think sometimes we do lose a little bit of focus as to what motivating factors lead people to just try it yeah. rather than yeah. just the people who get looped into it for a tragic reason like they were taking a pill after surgery yeah 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 i think i think it is an oversight um I, I'm I'm sure I've heard stories uh, that are common in America where it's like, oh, yeah, I was already doing this drug and yeah. it was kind of like a natural progression. My friend said, try it out and I loved it and I stuck with it. Um, that was the one that I heard the most. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm sure that there are a lot of other stories and a lot of other situations that ended up, you know, pushing people in different directions. Sure. Now, as they go on the Suboxone, though, mm-hmm. and this process starts to take place, because it's a wean-off drug. Yeah. First question, I assume there are different levels of magnitude of Suboxone? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, I guess the plan would be, on whatever timeline it is for right. that given patient that you guys decide, right. it's a certain wean-off, some yeah. whatever milligrams down right. to whatever. Okay. Right, right. When they come to the end of that, what was the success ratio 
and you don't have to give me exact numbers, but sure. like how solid was it that people really were better? And then also the second question would be, did you guys have systems in place that still sent people to get full rehab help as well? Yeah, yeah. They Whatever help you could get, you wanted. We were like a client-centered service. So it's like, like and, and this is something that I actually struggled with because my biggest thing was that in my head when I was coming into this field, I'm thinking the end goal is to get off of all medication. But the way that the clinic actually operated was that they'd never um, – encourage patients to get off it was just whatever the patient wants so if the patient wanted to stay on suboxone they would just stay on suboxone now was that in messaging rather than in the underlying goal you know what i mean no what do you mean okay that was a really fucked up way no no no, i'm i'm I'm, I'm here so the the whole point is that you don't want to you don't want to tell people what to do right and you don't want to shock them right and you don't want to be like hey just walk back here follow the little carrot in the stick right right? you want to you want to give them you want to make them feel like they have the autonomy to make their own exactly. decisions. Exactly. So what I'd be asking is that in that case, are you saying, hey, technically, if a patient keeps asking for something, unless it gets to an extreme point, we will give it? Right. Versus behind the scenes, you're like, let's figure out how we how we can properly gain the trust of this individual and develop a relationship such that we can make them feel like, and, and it's also real, right. that they're making their own decision. Right. No, to it's wean definitely the it. former. Okay. And and I was hoping for the latter. Right? Yeah. So like in my mind That's interesting. in my mind it would be the clinic's goal to have patients be fully free from all drugs, but I believe the clinic's actual goal was to just provide the client with the services that that they're looking for whatever that may be. Um and so it it was interesting and and there is a lot more to it that like a lot more complexity um around these cases like if you say that you lost your medication um you know you could you could only get and this was regulated by the insurance company they would only do one refill like one early refill I think a year. So like if you lose your medication twice and let's say you're on a month's dose and this does happen and some people they lie and some people truthfully lost their medication twice. Um, if you have a monthly and you and you lose it the first time, we have to call your insurance company, get a, a medical override, go get a doctor's visit, make sure the doctor's okay with it. And then, you know, okay, fine, we'll give you the, okay, you lost your medication after being in for 10 days. Here's another 20, 20 days to hold you to your next appointment. If you do that twice, the insurance company is like, nope, we're not paying for you it. You know what? I'm, I'm the last guy to defend insurance companies. That's fair. Yeah, no, it no, is. no, it, it is. is, it is, it is, and it, and it and it sucks. It sucks for a lot for the people that that are truthful about it. But it 100 percent makes sense because then you got people who are just oh, I lost it, I lost it, I lost it, I lost it, and they're making they're making bank. And, sure. and I saw it. I'm not just saying like oh this this may happen. No, I'm I'm outside the clinic uh, because across the street from our clinic we had a partnership with a. Um, a rehab center and 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 as anyone who's in this field knows rehab centers are prime for um um drug sellers people who, who sell drugs uh drug dealers i don't know why i couldn't think of that word <laughs> drug those drug sellers um meaning it, it, that uh, they'll so hold on a second yeah so like if you go to a methadone they go undercover? clinics n- not even undercover they'll just go and be like hey you guys want some drugs basically <laughs> Right, like that's the idea, and and it, it it makes sense, right? You've got a bunch of people who are trying to get clean, and you know that this is their vice. Yeah, why not make some money there? And so and so we would see it with our patients. They come in, hey, I got suboxone. I would, I literally heard the conversation personally with my ears of one of my clients who came in, and I came, oh, you forgot something, and I see them doing a handoff, money for drugs. 
So uh, people got to survive, man. A hundred percent. They have their own needs, and I I completely got it. And the one thing that I learned from my two years there was that I, there's no way I could cast judgment because so many people have so many different struggles and they have so many different needs. You wouldn't believe the amount of parents that are in there, and it, it breaks your heart who are bringing in their kids to these clinics so that they could get the stuff that they need to to to, to go on. Um, That's but, also amazing, though. And, and, and like and like I I know obviously you don't want to get to that point and whatever, sure, but sure. it goes to show you. You know, when people, even if like they kind of have to because they got to drag them with them, when people have their kids in there watching them get help mm -hmm. or watching them have to do something mm -hmm. that's like an interesting, this it's is a, a huge motivator. Yes, this isn't, it's a huge motivator, but it's also like, man, it puts some humanity on it, dude. 100%. I'll tell you the saddest story that I had while I was there, if, if that's yes, okay. Yes, please. Um, you don't have to ask if it's okay. Just say whatever you want, man. <laughs> and so uh, there, there was, um, it was a single father. Um, and like it almost puts a, a tear to my eye even just thinking about this guy. Nicest guy you'll ever meet. Um, he had a young daughter. She was, um, let's say, around four years old. And he... He had the uh, uh, he he was a single father because the um, he and the mother did drugs together and she overdosed and, and, and passed away. Mm. So now he's trying to get clean for his daughter. He's uh, he's already gone to trade school. I think he's maybe um, he works in renovating houses. And he's like, I you know I have my daughter. Um, she I don't know if he no he was American. His mother the mother was uh, Russian. Daughter speaks Russian and and, and English. And, um, at a young age. And so, um, and so he's like, uh, showing me nicest guy every time he comes, Oh, Terrence. Oh, what's up? Da, 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 da. We're hitting it off. I just got a new gig. I'm going to be renovating this house over here. Shows me the pictures. I'm like, yo, this is dope. Like he's really trying to get it together. And, um, he introduced me to a huge gap in Philadelphia that I would have never thought about. What's never talked about is that there are a lot of, um, single mother, um, homes for people who are homeless. So, like, if you're and where like they'll take the mother and the child um, in, into the into the homeless shelters. There are almost no single father homes um, for for homeless people, which I had never thought about and I I had never known. That's and so it was very difficult for me to help him find connect him with the right services to get a home. But we did it. And he was elated. Oh, Terrence, thank you so much. You know, I really appreciate all the work that you've done. When I say the nicest guy, I couldn't say it enough times. And so we got him in. Things are going well. He's he's bumped up to his monthly. I'm only seeing him once a month. Quick visits. He never complained. The first day that he came in, I remember he uh, most of these visits take a while because you have to see everybody before you can get your medication and get out. And uh, we were really backed up that day. He was probably there. I think he probably got in around ten. He probably didn't leave till around the time I left, like five o'clock. I mean, he was there all day, and he, and he saw me busting my ass, like running back and forth because my job is basically to like move things along to make sure that yeah. people aren't getting falling through the cracks, everything like that. So I'm basically his advocate. So he, he never got frustrated with me. Hey man, I really appreciate what you're doing. Mind you, all the people that come in that are trying, that are taking this seriously are going through withdrawal because you can't, that was another thing that I, I should have mentioned earlier. On the Suboxone. Correct. You can't, if you have heroin in your system or methadone in your system, you can't take Suboxone because you'll go into what's called precipitated withdrawal. 
Um, so if you have Suboxone in your system, or if you have um, heroin or methadone in your system and you take Suboxone, it forces your body into withdrawal. And it's a withdrawal that's worse than what regular withdrawal would already be. And you have to go to the hospital for it. I mean, you're puking, you're, you're sweating, you're shaking. I mean, the whole night. And I, I've had patients that I've got to see. Like, it's awful. And I so, want to come back. I want you to finish this yeah. story. I just want to let you know. I want to come back if we can. Yeah, I yeah. never remember this shit. Yeah. But I want to come back to the withdrawal. All thing. right. We could talk about okay. it. So. So all the patients that come in, they have to be going, they have to have minor withdrawal because they can't have other drugs in their system to take the Suboxone. So mind you, he's, he's in this clinic from 10 till five going through withdrawals, visibly sweating. And he's still like, Terrence, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing to me. That's the type of guy this is. And so we get him fast forward. We get him into the clinic. He's on monthly. So he's only coming once a month. And then all of a sudden, uh, one month I, I didn't see him. And I was like, okay, that's weird, whatever. Maybe he went on vacation, whatever. Um, another month goes by, I didn't see him. So I, 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 uh, I think after three months, I usually do like a follow-up call to, to, to all of the numbers that we have. So I called the clinic. And uh, it turns out that he uh, relapsed one time and overdoses and dies. And now his daughter is an orphan. And he doesn't have any family here because he was an immigrant. Correct. Oh, my God. She's got nobody. And it's like... Did you look into that? I, I mean, I, I they can't give me any information Ugh. on her. So I, like, I have no clue what, what, what happened with her. I'm assuming that... The fact that they had that information, I'm assuming she went into, you know, child protective services. Um, but I mean, it's it's literally awful because you build a relationship with these clients and it just goes to show. And and, and it, apparently this does happen. And I say apparently because I haven't looked up anything on the li- online, but um, doctors say it all the time that a lot of times that first with like if you've gone a long time um, not taking heroin, that because your um, threshold uh, what's that word? Your tolerance is mm-hmm. a lot lower because you haven't been taking it in a while and you're on Suboxone. That first relapse a lot of times gets you. Heroin is such a sad and, and sick drug to me. It is. It, and we've all, or I don't want to speak for everyone, but most of us have known some people that for whatever reason, sometimes it's like the saddest one where it's like literally as yeah. we've said like four times now where it's like after a surgery and then it just turns into that but a lot of us have known people who get addicted to that and i've known a bunch of people who've had that problem and i i did one of my friends who was on it for a long time mm-hmm. and couldn't get off tried everything right rehab the whole nine one of the things he explained to me is i was like do, do you ever like are you worried every day about going back to it and he said absolutely not every day Really? No. Really? And I'll tell you why. And he said, that, and this is more common, like the narrative is a little different with heroin addicts than it should be. He said, I'm sure there are some people who have it differently, but he said, a lot of my friends died, and then a lot of my friends who lived feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And he said, the thing is, I failed so many times getting off of it for years. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, like three, four years, something mm-hmm. like that, because you have to get really far off it you can't get clean for like three four months Mm. and like not worry about relapsing he's like there was this thing i don't remember if he said it was like a year out or something like that but at some point after thinking about it every day as you just pointed to you cross this threshold where enough time goes by where i guess chemically it wasn't in your system right where the thought of it sounds like the devil 
That's like like yeah. you get like when you think about it, it's not like it's very easy for someone who is an alcoholic to think about alcohol and be like, oh, I'll sip some because right. they're not going to – it's not the risk like when they take the first sip. Right, you know, it's a right. drawn out thing. With heroin, he's like that feeling is so distinct that when you're far enough past it and, you act, and you're one of the few who was able to do that, mm-hmm. you actually get a shiver down your spine. And he's like, so I, I never, never, ever worry about it. But most of the people I know never make it there because they yeah, die. Yeah. And it's scary to me like – I am very, very ultra liberal on drugs. Mm-hmm. And I am actually, and this is going to sound very contradictory, but I'm open to the conversation. I'm not saying I'm there. I'm mm-hmm. saying I am open. I'm open to all conversations, but I'm open to the conversation of full legalization of stuff. Okay. What scares me about that is the cost on humanity because it will be, especially in the first decade a pure survival of the fittest mm-hmm. if you make things so readily available for people including people who are already abusing to you know get their score on the street because mm-hmm. whatever happened in their life you're gonna have a lot of people die mm-hmm. i don't care if you do it in controlled centers there's gonna be a lot of that stuff and yet i kind of wonder if a lot of the motivations behind the people who get down these rabbit holes because it's not like they want to be there when they're there. Sure. I mean, that's crazy. Like, the idea sure. that like, oh, I want to be an addict. Once they're an addict, that's nuts. No right. one wants to be. That kid, That guy didn't want to die right. and leave his daughter behind. He was doing everything. He was everything. taking every action. Literally to... everything. Right. And he, and, he, and, he, and he was good at his craft. I mean, I would see the before and after pictures of these houses that he would help to renovate. And it's like, and I'm like, you did that by yourself? And he's like, I did that by myself. And he loved his daughter. Loved no her. question about it. Absolutely. It's not like some people who don't understand this stuff are like, oh, such a selfish thing. It's not like that, man. Nah. When you are chemically wired in a different way because of something, even if you made the wrong decision at one point in your life, like you don't know what caused that. Mm-hmm. And and I look at this and the cost of that scares the fuck out of me. Yeah. And there was a guy who went on, he was actually from Columbia too, who went on Joe Rogan, I don't know, like seven, eight months ago. And... I am trying to get myself to listen to the episode, but I will admit I have not been able to. And I also haven't read his books yet, though I'm trying to get myself to do it. And it's this guy, Dr. Carl Hart, who no doubt is a brilliant guy. He's a professor at Columbia. And his whole thing is he was like sober from what I understand of his story. He was sober for like all his life. And then he he studies like chemical reactions and Mm. stuff like in the body. So he's studying drugs. Sure. And he felt like the narrative around like pretty much all these drugs is wrong, which by the way, there may be some narratives in pretty much every drug that are somewhat wrong. Right. I'll agree with that. But long story short, this guy huffs heroin every day. Hmm. Huffs heroin every day and then writes books. And this is why I have trouble with the open mind talking about, oh no, you can do that. It's okay. And I'm like, this is my fear. If we get to that point where it's all readily available, are we going to have intellectually brilliant people like this who decide to take a contrarian opinion? And maybe he's okay, by the way. Mm -hmm. Maybe he is. Are we going to have those people, though, forget the fact that we are all wired differently Differently. and there are Mm -hmm. different strokes for different folks? And then are you going to incur – like I can't get myself – I will at some point, but I can't get myself to listen to that because I'm like, I'm just going to get mad. Right. It's hard. And the other thing that uh, that there was conversation around during this time, uh, and the conversation is kind of quieted down, is with these safe, in sec- safe injection sites, um, where are you going to put them? 
right and the and the idea like not in my backyard i remember was like a, mm-hmm. a common slogan it's like where are you going to put them because if you try to put them out in the burbs or somewhere it's like that's not where a lot where the vast majority i'll say of of users are and they're not going to go extremely out of their way as i learned through the care clinic um to 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 try to uh to to do something that they could already do where they're at. And if you try to put it in the neighborhoods where they are necessarily, then the property value of all of those, uh, of all of those homes and all the people, the hardworking Americans who live there, um, their property value is going to go down. And so it's like, where do we put these where it kind of makes sense and, and, and where everyone is going to be happy is a a question I have no answer for. And that's, Unfortunately, like the key question of all of it to even think of the idea itself. I, I just have Mike Calori in here who is he co-founded the Headstrong Foundation, right. which is an enormous, enormous cancer foundation. And he was telling the story where a guy who's a major donor and a cancer survivor literally for a dollar was going to sell them an entire floor to house cancer patients who are in town for treatment like literally like people fighting for their lives and the bottom line is the condo association wouldn't take it Mm. because it affects the property value right now talk about the milieu right of oh these low-income drug addicts right right? oh that's their choice that they did that that's a narrative that's a narrative and then people think about the value of, of their home, to mm-hmm. your point, going down. The value of their apartment going down. And then it's like, well, do it somewhere else, just not here. Well, what if they're saying that everywhere? And right. then someone's got to take it. Right. And then someone's, you know what? And unfairly, the people who accept that, now, like, their financial value of their place is going to go down. Right, right. And as, uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting while working there was the, all of the different types of people who work at at. At, I'll say mm. at our clinic, I'm sure at most clinics, they have people from all walks of life. And most fascinating is that we also had um, what we called peer specialists, which are basically people who, you know, lived the life, turned it around. And now they're kind of want to be like a mentor to, to, to other people and to say, like, you know, I've been through this. You can do it, too. How can I help you? Um, and, and the peer specialists were amazing. And we had this one peer specialist who was just an old school Puerto Rican guy. He'd been to prison, uh, you know, and, and he did that whole story where, like, you know, he, he's listening to Louis Farrakhan and, and, and he's listening to you know, Malcolm X. He's reading the books, very well read, knows that kind of stuff. A bit of a contrarian, you know, <laughs> like throwing throwing the ideas out there. A really guy like, listening to Farrakhan, yeah, a contrarian? Yeah, Come yeah. on. He's out there. And, Come on. And, and he's always pushing me, oh, Terrence, you're such a liberal. Why don't you? What are you doing? Uh, what do you know? You know, you young kid. Um, hilarious. We had the best conversations, the best debates, and, and things of like that. But he lived in the neighborhood. He lived in. Um, um, why am I forgetting the name? Uh, you know, where like most of the most of the heroin was. Um, not Northern Liberties, but Kensington. Yeah. Um, he lived in Kensington. So like he got to see it firsthand and he, and his view on it was like, he almost had that view where it's like, you know, I was there, like he had no sympathy cause he's like, I did it. And it's like from me and, and I can't, on one hand, on right on my left hand, I say, you know, I'm not in that, so I can't really have a voice to it. I don't live in that neighborhood. I've never done that. But on the other hand, I say, you got to have some compassion because yeah. just because you did it doesn't mean that everyone can do it. Or not that everyone can do it, but everyone is at a place. And of course, he knew that. He knows that that not everyone's at a place where they're ready to get to, to, to seek the help to get better or to stop doing drugs. But from his point of view, he's like, this is my home. Like, don't do drugs on my, on my, don't piss in my rose bush. Don't. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. And so, and, and he's giving back. I mean, that guy, uh, uh, 
he got he's he's one of the guys that got on bitcoin earlier talking about the episode with dylan mm. he got on bitcoin early and he's mining he's trying to every morning he came into the clinic he's like yeah baby he's bitcoin. Doing okay. yeah. like literally every morning i mean he's this is back in like 2016 this was uh yeah this was 2016 i so i i started yeah i started i started in the fall of 2016 he's not so, missing any meals no so yeah he's doing he's doing well um um and he's he's super smart with his money and like i said very well read he knows what he's talking about but it was just interesting to hear him and then compared to like a lot of the social workers are people who you know go to social work school and they're you know i won't say well i mean they just have a different walk of life right sure they have a different walk. You of need life. diversity, though, and, 100%. and you need diversity in thought. It doesn't mean that the diversity in thought on an individual basis, picking them out of a crowd, is going to be the answer to go with. Right. And it actually, he's right there, a prime example of one of my favorite little sideway arguments on on stuff where I can't stand the the Republican and Democrat positions, which is on. Uh, I, I don't. I'm going to make up a term for it, but like community responsibility. Mm-hmm. So. When you look at the inner cities, the idea that would be opposite of what that guy raised was that, oh, none of these people can help themselves. We got to do everything for them, right? And yeah, we, all, got, we were on the opposite side of that spectrum at our clinic, but go Right. Ahead. So you're all – and I'm not even sure he was. Um, you aren't though, and I'll, I'll explain why. Mm-hmm. The, the implication is that all these people are incapable of mm-hmm. doing anything, right? And that is the implication I feel when I, when I hear – Democratic politicians talking to urban communities, especially the Republican stance is pull yourself out by the, by the bootstraps. Mm-hmm, I did mm-hmm. it. You can too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's also bullshit. So one of my least favorite arguments is when I see Republicans say, well, you've been voting Democrat for 70 years. Might as well vote something else. Right, well, right, what right, the fuck right. are you going to do for them? <laughs> right. You know, like the one thing and it's sad. I got to say this. I say this very cynically. But the one thing the Democrats do is they take the time to pander to these people. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about that on that episode with, yeah, uh, with that other guy. I've, I've talked about this a couple of times. Okay. And so this is another prime example because you have a guy there. And what I'll give him credit for is he's a product of his own experience. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we are biased i don't care what anyone says 100%. everyone is biased by their own experience so he's like i came from this area i had this problem i got out of it i'm fucking mining bitcoin now mm-hmm. why can't you mm-hmm. and i think it's a very good motivating factor but when you then just assume that everyone can do that right, regardless right. of circumstances it's a problem right just again the reason i bring that up is because i don't want the assumption to be the opposite as no one can do it mm-hmm. we're going to do everything for you I think that's our biggest problem with society. Mm-hmm. Those are what our two sides think, and that's why you know I'm pretty homeless here. Right. So I I, I do want to clarify because I have a feeling I'm going to tell the guy who I'm talking about about this episode, and he's the type of guy who he'll listen. I w- I want to clarify that he's not the type of guy where he's like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I did it. You can too. He's more so of the guy that like I I'm not going to coddle you, and I'm not going to mm. give you a hundred percent of my sympathy because I understand where you've been. But if you want this, you can go get it. And I'm an example of that. Now and so there cool. is a kind of a, a nuance yes. there. Um, but he, he was real cold with it. Like, he's like, okay, yeah, you, you lost your job. Okay, suck it up. Let's go. What are we doing next? You know, and he kind of had that approach, which worked really well for a lot. I mean, a lot of the people who came in and used him as a peer specialist loved him because that goes over well for some people and doesn't for others, right? So he's also like a coach cheerleader. Oh, too. yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, it's like when someone's having a really bad time. The people who are able to psychologically acknowledge and be like, yeah, you know what? This sucks, but we're good. Yeah. Like, yeah, we're going to be good. Yeah. 
there's like a thing like, all right, this guy's crazy, but I don't know why I'm listening yeah. to him. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. I mean, he was one of my favorite people at the clinic. And you may, he, just thinking about him puts a smile on my face. He's great. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's cool. Like, your experiences are so interesting to me because you, like, and I said this the first time you were ever in here, and I'll say this till the day I die. Like, you have walked the talk your entire life. Mm-hmm. Like, you've been an activist. Like, everyone puts activists in their bio. They're mm-hmm. all full of shit. 99% of them are full of shit. Yeah. You've been an activist since you were 12 years old. Yeah. Like, literally, yeah. since I knew you at 11 or 12 years old. And you've been in all these organizations. You were involved with the NAACP when you were growing yep. up. And yep. then in college, like, the Freddie Gray stuff, because yep. you were down in Baltimore. And then you do all these other things. Like... This one I'm just really learning about for the first right. time today. But like you also, you've worked in criminal justice reform because mm-hmm. you've worked like you've gone into prisons yes. and work with people. And this is another one that I'm really curious about because it is a topic I'm passionate about. And I try not to rub people the wrong way because I understand that there are people out there who, you know, they had horrible crimes committed against them right. or family members and like they're hardliners on stuff and i understand that but i try to like everything as i say i try to live thirty thousand feet yeah, up in big the air picture. You need- and yeah and i look at criminal justice as a very archaic untried and untrue system in our country and what i'm not saying is that if someone's a fucking serial killer you know don't throw them in jail i'm not one of those guys mm-hmm. i'm saying that we have a department of corrections that doesn't look to correct mm-hmm. yeah a hundred percent um Part of the podcast that I was listening to and and an idea that's not new, everyone knows it, but that baffles me, truly baffles me, and there's not much out there that does, is how we can live in a society that loves statistics in the way that it does. If you watch any major league sport, you, you can learn any statistic going back to the 70s. And yet when you look at criminal justice reform and you look at uh, you, you look at all of the statistics around whether this system that we've created is actually working, there's nothing out there. There's no centralized database to learn, oh, how many times have there been police shootings? You know, there's no criminal database to say how many times have police been killed in the line of duty uh, uh, this month versus this month or this year versus this year and it's it's truly unbelievable given how much we like statistics as a society agreed so um i agree with you i mean i think at the end of the day there there does i think i think you would have to be living under a rock to think that our current system is working the way that it is intending to be worked Right. I think you'd have to be living under a rock to to truly believe that um, people who go to prison are suddenly reformed and never commit a crime uh, uh, again yeah. in a day in their life. Mm. And, and, and the thing that I always push people to believe to, to think about is why? Why is that? Why are we OK with sending people to prison uh, to, to, to supposedly make our neighborhood safe when it's not really working? And how can we change that? And I'm thinking about that. I think about that almost every day how can we change it a major oversight of mine and when i say oversight i mean something i've never really sat down and poured through the data on like i couldn't pull any out of my ass right now Mm -hmm. i'm sure maybe at some point i came across a number but i couldn't think of it and that is the private prison system Mm -hmm. so how much about that are are you aware i don't want to put i know i know a little bit i know a little bit i don't i don't know an an incredible amount but I, i know a little bit so let's just stick with the idea then sure to me the concept of like this is this is a prime example of where capitalism goes way too far mm-hmm. right so 
I'll argue with anyone that capitalism is the best system. It is. I'm still very critical of it because I'd like to improve it to be the best it can be. Mm -hmm. I understand it's never going to be perfect, but I think there's things we can fix, and here's a prime example. When you put an incentive on human beings to lock up other human beings when they also don't have to be there physically every day while it happens mm – -hmm. Even if they are, but let's say that they're not because they're not. These are companies that operate from behind the scenes and do their thing. That's sick to me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't know what the percentages of are where money's pouring into private prisons and stuff. But you read some of these cases sure. about some of these judges who righteously so have gone to jail for a very long time because it, they, you find a trail where they were incentivized to send people, oh, you know what, I'll give them 20 instead of 10. Mm -hmm. you and, know? and I know you're going in one direction, but I, I just want to loop it back yeah, because this is please. something that I actually do know is that when I was working in um, as, as a case manager, you start to see it with the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, Wait, and, how so? and this is not something that a lot of people are talking about, and, yeah. and I've fallen out of touch, so I don't know how it's progressed. I'm in. But, but I'm while, in. Let's go. <laughs> while I was there, um, you would hear cases, there would be rumblings. Again, I don't have any statistics to back this up, but there were rumblings that there were pharmaceutical companies that were if, uh, if, if a judge had a patient – and or had had someone who was addicted to drugs and they would say and i and this part i know is true they would say hey you need to go clean yourself up go to the care clinic for example and um and and try out drug treatment generally but there was talks that that general was going to start being specific where pharmaceutical companies will say hey judge why don't you put this on and this is a conspiracy i want to be clear i'm not saying this is factual but the conspiracy was that either we are going towards or that we were already there where these pharmaceutical companies will go to the judges and say, hey, you need you should put them on Suboxone. Try Suboxone specifically. And the judges would say, okay, you need to go and try Suboxone. And now the judges are getting kicked back. It's interesting. It's Even as a thought, it's interesting. Because it's something that you can, and I can tell by your face, you can believe. Yes. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's something that absolutely could be true, given the history of our country. Now, see, this one's sick. This one's sick. It is. I'm going to relate it to one that everyone's talking about right now, and that's the whole vaccine thing. There's an enormous difference here. The vaccine were – one of the things that pisses me off is there's so much misinformation about it right now and its efficacy. Yes, is the idea of a vaccine to completely stop you from noticing you have any symptoms because it's in your body and you don't – and therefore you don't know it? Yes. Would I love that the vaccine – would I love it if the vaccine were – working a little better against variants for that at this point and you didn't know you had the fucking flu when you had it and it's covid yes however if you look at the numbers of people who are in hospitals and i'm not going to pull them up right now you guys can fucking pull them up on DuckDuckGo, <laughs> google do your thing right it is the majority majority unvaccinated individuals mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. of the vaccinateds some of the numbers I've seen, though I am far less confident on this, so please take this with a grain of salt, is a lot of them are like very out of shape individuals, mm. right? So they're just going to the hospital as a precaution more than anything. But the numbers in like where there's been breakouts among vaccinated people have been really good. Mm -hmm. Like people are feeling banked up, but they're right. staying at home. They right. don't have to go to the hospital. They're fine. So to me, the vaccine's working. Yes. But it's a part of that whole narrative that like, oh, it's not working. Right. Look, you know, control, right. control, control. And again, I agree with some of the control stuff, not the not the concept of the vax but the control stuff right but i see this and one of the things that people talk about is like big pharma all the time like oh these people they're drugging all of us they're trying to corrupt us and stuff like that 
what I've said about the vaccine is that if these people are lining their pockets and giving us a booster shot instead of something that they know they can give us once and we're good. Right. I don't give a fuck. No, I don't care. Okay. I don't care. If and they, if you care about businesses, and a lot of the people who are anti-vaxxers are also pro-business, I, or at least in, the, in my circles, the people that I've heard of, if you're for the businesses, go out and get it. Because the statistics say that it's working, and if, the, if it's working, businesses do well. If businesses do well, you should be happy. Now, that's an interesting point, but I'm going to go, yeah. <laughs> stay off the sidebar here. Please. I'm saying... If those people, if, you know, a year from now, five years from now, right. they send a bunch of these people to trial because they were robbing us right. and, like, you know, double double jointing us, if they weren't killing me, I'm just not going to send a leniency letter to the judge. Mm -hmm. Lock them up. Mm -hmm. You know, do your thing. I just don't – it doesn't affect my life. Yeah, you know especially I mean? since it's not like we're paying thousands of dollars for the vaccine anyway. Correct. I got mine for free. I don't it's, know. It's free. Like, for me, if other people are lying in their pockets, they got to look themselves in the mirror the, at night. That's for them. Like, I'm not here to save the fucking world in every single place. Correct. Like, there's certain things I'm going to live without, right? Like, information. But when you're talking about something like what you brought up, mm -hmm. where it involves chemically hooking people to things, mm -hmm. or marketing a drug that, that the hope is that, oh, maybe we'll get a percentage of them that just never go off it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's sick. Yeah, it is. That's sick because this is not something where it's like a vaccine and you don't even notice it after the first day you did it. And mm -hmm. like now you're good just not getting this fucking weird disease or whatever it is, virus. Now it's like, oh, this is something that is going to be a daily part of your life mm -hmm. and is going to chemically change you and affect your relationships and your quality of life. And That's fucked up. And, and, and another reason I, why I don't put it past, quote unquote, big pharma is because you see it in other ways, right? And so while I was working, well, I'll say there was a period of time where pharmaceutical companies would approach doctors and would say, hey, you guys, you guys want to go out to dinner? I'll pay for your dinner and I'll teach you about I'll teach you about this medication. And they market it as an educational thing where, hey, we're teaching this these doctors about a new drug. But what it could be, I won't say that it is, because the optis, optimist in me wants to believe that these pharmaceutical companies truly do want to educate about a, a medicine that they're passionate about. But if you wanted to be a skeptic, you could say that what they're really doing is buying these fancy dinners, because I've been to them, and you're paying, and you're eating at the best places, and you're like, hey, I've got this medication, use this over what you're already prescribing. And that's only one step next to doing the same thing with judges. That is what that is exactly what it is. So it's I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And I, I kind of like I said, I looped us back. I know we were going. No, towards... no, no. I, let, let's stay with this. Okay. this is, I I like going all over the place, right. especially like when guests are coming up and riding a wave. I'm like, let's ride the damn wave. So we'll, we'll come back to criminal justice reform because this is interesting. But when like one of the things that I always at least give credit for it on like an individual basis in this situation is that. It's often a product of groupthink. Right. You get a few bad actors in there. There's some bad people in there, sure, right? Sure. And those are the people that then just happen to like kind of drive the train in one direction. And other people then, you know, we use terms and I use them too and I still will. Like big pharma, right. you know, right. fuck the banks. You know, I hate <laughs> banks and everything. I work there. But like right, right. I work there, right? Right, right. And, and, I, and obviously like I'm, I'm out here like right. for the people. Right. So it goes to show you there's a lot of people in these places who are very good at their jobs and do their thing and are in their lane because these are big companies. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget when I was – in between industries, like I was looking to shift. This is pre-pandemic and, you know, because 
I guess because the pandemic happened, this happened. So mm -hmm. it all worked out. Mm -hmm. But I was looking at a lot of things in marketing. And there's one lady I got hooked up with who is awesome. Like the sweetest woman, incredibly sharp, unbelievably good at her job. And she was a major, major league head honcho in marketing at one of the big pharma companies. Mm -hmm. And so I went into their studio, which is like a whole floor and all these things and visited with her for a day. And I will tell you, especially given the fact that there are regulations on these ads that you create and stuff, right. I was blown away with the work. I was blown away. And she was so, she's an artist, right? Right. She's an artist who was hired by a big pharma company because right, they were right. paying and like, okay, well, I guess we're doing a good thing. We're giving people something they need. Right. So she's told, you know, she's biased. She's told about a drug and she's like, this must be amazing. All right, let's message it sure. this way. And her eyes are lighting up, showing me all these, all these ads of drugs she's made that are incredible, by the way. Right. I mean, like I'm watching these, I'm riveted by what, by the work that, that she put together. And all then I remember like doing some research on some of those drugs <laughs> and like some of the things that happen to people. Right. And all I could think about is I'm like, I know I just met with a really good person today who's also extremely talented and great at her job. Mm -hmm. I know that she doesn't know any of this or she doesn't think of any of this because she's like, I work at a good place. I like the people I work with. Mm -hmm. We must be doing good things here. Maybe. But I maybe, maybe, maybe. Right? But also I know that some people there, not all the drugs, maybe not even at this place, maybe they're actually mostly okay despite some of the stuff I read. Some people aren't going to look at the world with rose-colored glasses that she does, mm -hmm. and they're going to take advantage of her being in that seat mm -hmm. with that talent, and they're going to they're gonna do this to people. Yeah. And to me, that's the ultimate sadness here because we then blame them all. Yeah. And it's like, well, shit, man. Same thing with bankers in 2008. There was a great – I've said it like 12 times on this podcast. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. But this great trader at Lehman Brothers, because obviously traders had nothing to do with what right, happened. Right. Jared Dillion had a famous quote in his book, Fire Writer, by the way. Read his books. He's incredible. But he had a famous quote in his book after the crisis that he wrote, which was working at Lehman Brothers. Mm -hmm. There were approximately 20,000 people who worked there, and 19,995 of them were good people who were very good at their jobs. Mm -hmm. I always amend it and say it was like 19,970. Either way, the point remains. And it's like it's no different with this. And then it, even like where you bring up the legal system, all it takes is like a couple yeah, yeah. couple bad judges. Yeah. You know? And police. Yes. <laughs> right? I was I was waiting for you to go there and I was I didn't, surprised you didn't I wasn't even thinking say it. of that. But I mean, uh, uh, and, and for those who know me know that my father was a police officer and 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 while I do believe that there needs to be some radical changes within the police department, I do believe I, I know a lot of cops. I, my family is made up of a lot of state troopers, police officers, FBI agents, um and, and I do believe that there are a, a a large I'll even go so far as to say majority of cops who go in because they care about their yeah. community and they want to do better but the the issue is that the ones that don't are really bad and and the difference between cops and all of these other fields are that well maybe not big pharma because you know some of these drugs right. could kill I, people I know what you're saying. but yep. uh, 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 w the big difference is that with these police officers the ones that are really bad who want to do harm can do generational harm yes. right 
generational harm where we're missing an entire generation of fathers now who are in prison over extremely minor drugs who or or are having things planted in the worst case scenario you've got overzealous cops who are planning things um and and it's terrible but what you may what you said earlier made me think of this book uh that i had to read for my 11th grade satire class with ann rock who's in satire class yeah i took a i took we had electives almost like a because like my school's a college preparatory school so um we had electives chestnut chestnut hill guy don't forget don't forget chestnut hill academy which is now springside chestnut hill academy which is a conversation for another day (laughs) but um but uh ann rock she took uh she taught satire one of my favorite classes one of my favorite professors super hard i don't even think i did well in her class but she's just so good i was soaking everything in and one of the books we had to read was uh thank you for smoking which yes becoming a movie that was a movie very good movie Um, yeah i didn't see the movie but i did read the most of the book. I don't think I ever really. I was the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, but you know, the, uh, you could probably tell it more because I I barely remember this was so long ago. But it was about a guy who was in an advertisement company for smoking, and I don't think he I don't think he did smoke at that time, and he knew how bad smoking was. But he was at least how I'm remembering. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you remember differently, I, I think the famous line from the end that summed it up. Not the spoiler alert here. Aaron Eckhart was phenomenal in that movie, but it was something along the lines of he was in court talking about it, and somebody asked him, "If your son, talk about personal responsibility, if your son came up to you today, who's thirteen years old, and said, Dad, I want my first pack of Marlboros, what would you do?'" He said, "I'd know I failed as a father, and I'd go out and buy him for him." And the concept was it's on people to decide what they want to do, so it's not our fault. Okay. But I, I just – I really remember that, and I'm glad you, you bring up that book slash movie, so please continue. But it's it's such a – there's a lot of moral questions in yeah, that. And it's yeah. similar to – it's a similar theme to what I it was is. just talking about. It is, and that's why it made me think of that because the way that I remembered it was that he that he didn't smoke – personally but he was mm-hmm. at an advertisement company and he was like saying you know smoking is great you should do it it makes you cool whatever he was saying and then eventually like i remember him getting kidnapped and people putting like nicotine patches on him i don't know if they did that in the movie but i definitely remember that from the book and uh and it was about like kind of like almost like his trauma and and then he could kind of see the other side about the the horrible effects Maybe I'm misremembering. I, no, I, I, th- I think that's what... I haven't seen the movie in a long... I'm okay, going to watch yeah, that Yeah, now. we're going to we're gonna have to revisit. I haven't seen that in over a decade. Regardless, I, I implore people to, to read because at the the point that I'm trying to make holds true regardless, and that's that there are these moral moral dilemmas yes. sometimes um, in, in what we do. And, and I will tie this back to what I was thinking about saying, but since you said I can talk about whatever, I'll go into Please. it. Um, in, in that uh, I've always done social justice things. I've always cared about my community and put my community first. And um, I thought that that would lead me into becoming a public defender. Um, but ultimately, I'm ending up at Big Law. I accepted an opportunity at, at a large law firm, and I actually remember having a conversation with my peers at my at the clinic that I was working for, and they were like, "Yeah, okay, you're going to law school, but don't become like a big law guy. Don't don't change up on us." And while I have no intentions of changing who I am as a person, and I have every intention of of keeping my moral compass intact and letting the law firm know. Because for me, sure. my morals are more important than a few dollars. And, and by a few dollars, I mean hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? For me, my morals are more important. There are going to be situations that I have to think about that on a daily basis. There are clients that I'm going to have to take where I have to think about, do I really want to be representing someone that did something that's potentially extremely heinous, right? And so that's something, that's a, that's a thought that I had to go over 
and over and over and over. And what I came to the realization was about the other side. And the other side is that there are so few African-Americans in big law. At my firm specifically, there are, we have over 200 lawyers that work there, and there are five, I think, five black ones, one mm. who's partner, only one who's partner. And she said she's, uh, she before she was partner, there was one partner, and that partner has since left, and she's been the only partner there for a very long time. And, and when I tell you that the firm that I work for is very progressive and was the reason why I picked this firm, because they care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, very much so. Um, and they taught the talk, they walked the walk, and if but you- they only were, have one partner. And black. they only have one, and that's, I mean, that's a lot. Because if you look at most other that's places, true. they have zero. Um, and this firm, I believe, was like one of, if not the first um, firm to hire a female partner in the, in the city of Philadelphia. So, I mean, okay. what what's considered progressive to the law field is exactly the reaction that I get from everyone else. That's like, what? That's progressive? No, it's all relative. Yeah, it's super relative. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I intentionally picked this place, and I do have other ideas of my own about what I plan to do while I get in there that I won't share publicly. But but I, I say that to say that you have to think about these sure. things. You have to think about the morals of the situations that you're getting yourself into. And the thing that I've really kept coming back to is, if not me, it's someone else. If yes. I'm not representing this person, it's someone else. And if and and hopefully, you know, God willing, I make it to a place where I can be a decision maker. Then I get to a place where I can say, "Hey, I'm not taking this case. I'm not doing this." Man, this is such an interesting dilemma to me because I'm not a lawyer. Never wanted to be one. My dad was one, and I knew I didn't want to be one when I was like 13. So, uh, I I think about this a lot. And the most common place to think about it, though, it is applicable everywhere, especially like in high stakes situations mm -hmm. that involve money. But the most common place is like when you think about criminal defenders mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the law is that everyone has a right to an attorney, which right. makes our law incredible. So that means even the worst people, Charles Manson, even though he didn't really use it, I think he represented himself, but he, <laughs> he had a right to an attorney, right. you know, and Again, the slippery slope implication of that is brilliant because that's why even a guy like that, technically, yes, and you got to think that like if you're that anus, like the majority of the time, the law is going to work itself out. And right. obviously, it doesn't always happen. Right. We'll, we'll get to that. But, sure. you know, I, I look at this and I, I think about some of the lawyers I know in criminal law, and, and I don't know a ton of them. Most of the lawyers I know, and I know a lot of lawyers, they're all on the litigation side. Mm -hmm. They're all on commercial. They're mm -hmm. on civil stuff. They could be employment, mm -hmm. stuff like that. But I do know some in criminal. And there's one guy I know. I want to be careful how I say this, though I, I would like to get him on the podcast. So fuck it. We'll just go the whole way. But there's one guy I know a little bit. My dad, he grew up. He was in my town, and my dad and mom were friends with him and his wife, mm -hmm. and great guy. This guy, Brian McMonagle. Okay. He is legitimately one of the top five defense attorneys in the United States of America. That's awesome. So he was number one, I think, in 2015. He So right now, actually, going to go against my example here, but he represents Meek Mill. Okay. In, in that whole case. Okay. So finally, representing what I view as a very innocent guy, <laughs> sure. right? Like Got a it. very fucked up case. Yeah, yeah. I say that because... This man has never represented an innocent person. He'll deny this as he should, but an innocent person ever. Right. In fact, this is the guy who got Bill Cosby off and then quit. 
Mm. And then Bill Cosby got found guilty until mm. that recent mm. whatever sketchiness sure. or whatever. Sure. But the way he got him off was also like fucking crazy. Just unbelievable. Like That's what you get paid the big bucks to that's do. That's what I'm saying. I say all this because and people will cynically tell me I'm full of shit when I say this. But this guy is morally one of the greatest people you will ever meet in your life. Mm. Like he is the salt of the earth. Somebody who if there's an afterlife, he's He's up there. One way ticket up there. <laughs> right. Like an amazing individual. And I, I on the beach a, a couple summers ago, I ran into him and I talked with him like a little bit about this. But one time I really want to dig into him about it where he can't, you know, he can't talk about clients, obviously. Absolutely. But he can talk on a general level. You know, w- what's that like when you, you know, a guy's guilty. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's guilty of like some bad shit mm-hmm. too. And you still got to go in there and you have to make his case. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, I'd, I'm sure maybe at some point he did something, but I've never seen him represent a serial killer. Mm-hmm. But he's done murder trials. He's done, you know, he did the Cosby one. He's, mm-hmm. he's done some crazy ones. And like, I'll speak for myself here. Cosby was guilty as fuck. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a wild thing to me because yeah. it, it can take a good person or a bad person to do it. It can take a bad person who's just like, oh, there's a lot of money in this and I'm fucking great at it. I don't care what it does to other people. Right. I'll go do it. Right. And it can also take a good person, which I am 1,000% convinced he is, which is, yes, obviously I've turned into the best of this so I get paid the big bucks and I take the best cases. Sure. But I'm doing this because this is what our legal system is. And yeah. so everyone has a right to this. And therefore, I am going to go in and do my job. And that's what you have to convince yourself of at the end of the day. I mean, I, I interviewed for the Philadelphia Public Defenders, and I actually did a clinic with them um, last spring. And, you know, they ask you questions like that. Is there like a type of case where you think that you couldn't do? And I don't know necessarily why they asked that um, on, on the spot. But you have to convince yourself if you're thinking about going into that work, whether private defenders, private criminal defenders, or public criminal defenders, um, is that you have to convince yourself that we have a system. And if you're someone like me who, who, who cares about the community and goes into it because you want to try to help the community, you have to believe that there are so many people who have been screwed over by the system that it's only right to make sure that everyone has the opportunity regardless of whether they did the crime or not because that's the way the system is set up and you have to believe in that system. There's really no other way to think about it. Every single person is 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 is, is should be given that opportunity. Private – Defenders may be a little bit more difficult to kind of wrap your head around. For me, it was very easy because I'm like, you know, poor people are taken advantage of all the time. So I will represent anybody who can't afford to pay for an attorney. But you have to believe in the system. I mean, because there's otherwise I don't know how you would sleep at night knowing that you potentially got someone who who raped a child off and they're out there and could be doing it again. That's the thing, man. That's a scary thought. And I don't know if he did any of those. I haven't I haven't seen that one. Maybe he did. I don't know. But I I don't know. And I don't know that I've ever really had that conversation with a defense attorney at mm-hmm. all. Like how you sleep with that. Because these guys do know. I, I did talk with one guy once who's not a defense attorney, but he was early in his career mm-hmm. for a few years. Mm-hmm. And he and the thing about his cases was because I was asking about guys who were guilty, he he argued them. And he did them correctly, but he's like, they were obvious outcomes, right? And it wasn't like some wealthy guy paying a ton of money. It was like, this guy was a murderer. Like, that's how it's going to go. Okay, whatever. And so he never really had to worry about that. Mm -hmm. But what about the guys, 
you know, the Ben Braffmans of the world or mm-hmm. something. You know, what if what if somebody had gotten off Harvey Weinstein? Right. Like how and that and I believe and I respect her for this, but I believe it was like a woman representing him. If he got off and he wasn't gonna, but let's say he she got him off. How does she go home knowing that like even if some of these girls came out of the woodwork, you know this yeah, yeah, guy. Yeah. You know this. I mean, guy it's just it, to, to, to even bring it into the to the realism. What actually happened? If you look at that guy Brock, that swimmer, you know, yeah, man. I mean, he got the lightest sentence possible. What was and, what was the what was the word the judge used on that? I don't even remember. Was that the one where he said like affluenza or something? No, that was a different one. But that okay. that was like a car accident, I believe. This was this affluenza. was the Stanford swimmer the Brock swimmer. Turner. Yes, yeah. Brock Turner. Yeah, and so like if you look at that, I mean. I don't know. It's hard. I mean, it's a really difficult thing that you have to struggle with. And, and, and I'll even bring up just for the sake of, of bringing it up so that I can sleep at night is that get, the, the same is true for the prosecution, right? So I believe statistically it is more likely uh, the opposite way where it's like you're representing a, a guilty person they get off free because our system is supposed to be set up where we would rather have, you know, a hundred – guilty people go off then send an innocent yes. person to prison but that doesn't mean that innocent and my father is the perfect example of, because he works with those types of cases doesn't mean that innocent people aren't sent to prison every day you know what i mean yeah in man. the nation i won't yes. say in every city but in the nation i'm sure every day there is an innocent person that goes to prison and, and we have to think about that and in my opinion that's way more egregious in the way the system's set up it should be way more egregious and so it's my number one fear and so as a prosecutor, you've got, let's say you got a guy or a girl who you're not 100% convinced did this crime, but it's your job to put them away regardless. What do you do? Another one of my favorite topics you're bringing up, gamification. I was waiting for it. Gamification of the legal system. This, te- we've te- talked, this we've talked about before. I don't know that I've talked about this with a lawyer, though. So this is this is interesting. It's funny if you Google gam- gamification or yeah, gamification prosecution. I think is what you said, or prosecutorial gamification, or something like that. Nothing comes up. So why don't you? Yeah, because that's a term I thought of in my head. Because it I'm, makes sense. Yeah, and I'm, I knew what you meant yeah. when you said it. But I was just like, let me just look up some articles. There's nothing out there. So I think the terms they would use, and I could be wrong about this, but maybe things like moral hazard or ethical obligation versus something or you know what i mean mm-hmm. but i know I just, exactly what you I meant throw when you that said word it. on there and like i'm sorry but an example we use all the time because i i just think it should have disqualified her from the ticket is, is kamala harris mm. her record as a prosecutor I, i'm not going to sit here and say she's a horrible person maybe she is maybe she isn't what i do know is that she was a no i don't want to use the word victim she she was a part of what I see far too much of in the prosecution system, which is a result. And so with her, mm-hmm. the egregious people give her shit about the truant mother's thing because of the way she talked about it. That was pretty egregious. But like the thing I look at more is what, who was the guy that Josh Dubin who runs the innocent project? Mm-hmm. He talked a lot about this. Mm-hmm. She suppressed evidence for people who were on death row mm. when the evidence was clearly going to show that they were innocent. The reason she did that, I am guessing here, I don't know this, Mm -hmm. but I am guessing is because that would be a bad look Mm -hmm. on the numbers and on the reputation of the prosecution department. Mm -hmm. And this is where you fucking lose me because it's like – and don't get me wrong. The fact that we had Biden and Harris running against Trump is embarrassing because literally like a bare minimum, 
was automatically going to be better at that point, especially by the end. (laughs) And yet we picked a guy who's just old as fuck (laughs) and her who's just brutal to me. Brutal. It's like I know our country is a lot better among women than Hillary Clinton and Kamala Harris. And I don't know why they've been the two in focus, but that's just my own issue right there. But I look at this and I go... I'll plead the fifth on that one. That's fine. When you start to go, and and actually to your credit, like you weren't hot about that either in the last episode. So, and you're on record with that. And that's that's great because I I don't think anyone should have been hot about the last election. But you look at her record and when you go to that level, even if it's gamification, you are disqualified in my eyes Mm. because you are now, you're not just like, it's already time Mm -hmm. you're fucking with people. Like when, when a judge gets a little gastric reflux and comes back from lunch in a pissed off mood and says 15 years instead of 10, he goes home that night. Right. Well, he just gave that guy five extra years. Yeah, yeah. Get like, caught up in the like legal stuff. Nothing. Like nothing. Like nothing. And I, I'll pause you there just because that was like the thing that really ate at me at my time with the public defense. I was only there for a semester and I only did preliminary hearings. But what I saw was a microcosm of what I know to be true in the justice system. And, it, and it's so subjective. Yes. And, it, and, it, and it really kills me as an analytical thinker, the way that you're taught to be in law school, why we can be okay with such a subjective way at criminalizing people and potentially ruining families. It was really disheartening for me to go in front of a judge and make an argument about a case, a low-level drug offense. Okay, this guy's got uh, conspiracy and possession with intent to deliver, which is extremely common in Philadelphia. And I go up and I make an argument and I cite case law and I say, this is not criminal conspiracy. This is not possession with intent. And he's like, I don't believe you. We're going to let it go to trial. And the next day I get a different judge and I I argue the exact, when I say the exact same, I literally copy and paste the word document for the next criminal conspiracy, possession with intent. It's a little earlier in the morning. They already had their breakfast. It's nice to see you, Terrence Jones. Uh, What do you got for me today? Give the same argument. And they're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. We'll throw out the conspiracy. We'll have the possession with intent. What? It's the same. I literally, the fact patterns couldn't be any closer. But because the judge, because it's four o'clock in the evening rather than uh, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, you want to give them a different sentence because it's a different judge. It's, it's unbelievable how subjective this can be when we're playing around with people's lives. Yes. Yes. Did you read the book Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell? I am currently reading the book. No Talking shit. To yeah, and, and it was funny because you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell in another podcast. I love And I, I, I do not read for pleasure generally, uh, and I, I have no problem saying that. Um, but Malcolm Gladwell is the exception to that rule. Um, I did read Outliers cover Incredible. to cover, which is, I think, one of like five books that I've ever read cover to cover. And um, my fiance's mother bought me um um talking to strangers and uh, a signed copy by malcolm gladwell which is amazing Great he's guy. a he's a brilliant writer he's amazing because he brings out all different perspectives and i think he's even like i think he's a i think he's a liberal guy i don't want to speak for him but he legitimately in his books like they're not there's no element of of in my opinion, there's no element of politics to them. I agree. Everyone should appreciate them because it's statistics. It's he, statistics. It's, it's not it just. Is what it is. It's not even just statistics, though. He puts humanity behind those mm-hmm. statistics, and that's yeah. what I. And he's an amazing writer he's so too. Good. But I guess if you didn't know what I was going to bring up, maybe you haven't gotten to this part in the book. Haven't. But it's. I think it's only a few pages, so small spoiler for it's you. It's fine. But there was a study done 
in, I believe, one of the New York City courts. I think it was maybe the Southern District, one of them. And it was on judges and bail numbers and their bias on mm. how they would hand out these bail numbers based on someone's background, meaning their race. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what this AI study determined is that judges were far more likely to give a higher bail number or a higher burden of bail, whatever mm-hmm. you want to say, to people of minority backgrounds than people who didn't have minority backgrounds. Okay. And what Malcolm's takeaway, and I haven't read the book in a year, so I don't want I want to make sure I I have this right, so fact check me if you need to on this. But his takeaway wasn't that, oh, these judges are all racist. He goes, there are some built-in ideas based on previous experiences you have mm-hmm. in previous cases, mm-hmm. and also the fact that maybe sometimes someone looks different than you, mm-hmm. that you don't think about it, and you say, you know what, $100,000 instead of fifty. Mm-hmm. Same thing with sentences. And so I kind of like the approach of, hey, yeah, are some of these judges probably bad? Yeah, some of them are, but a lot of them are probably great. And there's just a way that, unfortunately, our humanity is still built into the system. doesn't matter how much education you had or how great a judge you are understanding the law. There's still certain flaws that we have as humans that we may not consciously realize that affect people's lives. And it's still scary because you see it happening on a real-time basis in, you know, in this case, in the year 2017 or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And yet, I'd like to get that out of the system I hope you can understand, though, that I sometimes have some doubts about that because I'm like, well, shit, if we're not there now, like how, how much longer is it going to take us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just I, I think about utopias all the time and, and I think about what what could happen in a perfect world. And uh, thank you. And um, it's just like I don't understand how we can live in this world where I, as a law student who only did one semester at the public defenders, can see cases that are so similar, and yet there isn't a similar outcome. And I know that's what, what do you mean by that. So, like what what I was talking about, where it's like, okay, it's conze- uh, uh, you've you set up a uh, investigation, and you've got uh, a lookout person. The cops are looking out. They they you know do the same thing. I mean, the cops do the same thing every time, and they lock the guy up, and then it's always uh, conspiracy, possession with an intent to deliver. Um, and it's always the same thing, and yet the 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 sentencing can be so different, or the uh, the charging can be so different. You would think in a world where we force lawyers to go through three years of law school and then have them study uh, every field of law that you can think of, uh, just to take a test, closed book, which let me be clear would be malpractice. If you did that in real life, if you came to me as a lawyer and said, Terrence, hey, I know you do uh, labor law. Uh, can you help me with this problem? And I said, Close book. Right. And I said, oh, yeah, uh, I'll help you with that problem. Go do this. Uh, and I know this to be true off the top of my head. I'm not going to do any research. And you go out and do it and get sued. That's malpractice. And yet that's what we're testing our lawyers to be. It makes no sense. But But I say that to say – in a world where we make lawyers go through all of those hoops, how can we not make judges go through those same hoops? And, and, and I don't know for a fact that they don't, but how can we have it such that it's not like, oh, when you see this scenario happen, you should be looking for these things. And in looking for these things, the outcome should be this. And then we look, okay, this judge, he's known for being mm. harsh. He's known I for being a harsh judge. Yeah. He's over his 15 years of being a judge, typically we suggest judges to do this. He's doing 10 times that. You can't be a judge anymore. Get out of your seat. 
because you're going way past what we would recommend someone to do for that type of scenario. There's not that many crimes out there. Right. And so when you're committing these crimes, what do you, what do you mean there's not that many? Crimes? I mean, like, okay, like, let's say, you know, like burglary, theft, you know, like different, like cr for criminal purposes, there's not that, there's a set number of crimes. Like, there, it's not like we're every day we're inventing new crimes. I understand. You got, yeah. I mean, it's a yeah. set, it's a set world. All of the crimes codes out there, there's not going to be a new type of crime. Let's call this, uh, uh, sock burglary and that's going to have its own sense no like burglary is burglary is burglary it's not going anywhere so my thing is i don't understand how we can't have a set rules and regulations for judge to judges to adhere to so that when you have a scenario when it's burglary and, and we kind of do you know the crimes code has a suggestion you know 10 to 15 years right but within that 10 to 15 years what is it what what are judge how does a judge if you have a case let's say murder is is 20 years to life let's say and a judge says 80 years, how did he get there? I, that part I don't understand. If it's 10 to 15 years for a crime, what makes it 10 years? What makes it 15 years? Is a judge literally just pulling it out of his ass? I don't get it. This is one thing that actually works both ways too, mm -hmm. which is interesting because truthfully, the stories I hear much more of and the statistics would back that it works in the wrong direction far too often mm. where people judges give cases what's it an adjudication sure is that what yeah. they call it at sentencing mm -hmm. i know a little bit of my law a little bit they they give the i whole, would hope so they, they, <laughs> they give the whole sentencing thing and and they give far too long or you know like we were saying earlier i think like you know they add five years on just arbitrarily mm -hmm. but I, I i did see a case i think i've talked about it on the podcast before but i saw a case Earlier this year, because once in a while, I will go down certain rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. And one of the rabbit holes that probably happens once a year is I'll look at cases on YouTube of sentencing mm -hmm. just to see, like, the humanity of it. Just like someone's getting sentenced to life in prison. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. what's that like? Holy shit. It's like tragedy, but it's also like, wow, they did some fucked up things. Sure. And I was watching one earlier this year where a father was testifying at the sentencing of the kid who killed his son. And the story of the kid who killed him was he was like a basketball star in high school, but he wasn't good enough to like go to the next level. Right. And so he had nothing. He had a broken home. He lived in a fucked up place with a bunch of people who did drugs and, you know, his life had fallen apart. Right. And so one night he went to rob a pizza delivery guy and it went wrong and he killed him. And the pizza delivery guy was this father's son. And so the guy gets on the stand at sentencing and obviously was found guilty and it was a capital murder case. Right. And what happened next was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. The dad gets up there and he says, nothing is going to bring my son, and I'm paraphrasing, nothing is going to bring my son back. But what about this kid? Mm -hmm. He's 21, 22. He never had a shot. My son had a good home. You know, we were there. We supported him. We, he had a good life. He was happy. I wish like hell he was still here, but he's not. And this kid was only in that position because he came from a bad home. His life went wrong. He was with the wrong people. And he made a really, really bad decision that's going to hurt me for the rest of my life. But why should it end his? Right. And the judge had to excuse herself from the courtroom because she was in tears. Mm. And 
I think she gave the kid 20 or 25 years. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you know, 21-year-old, his life's ruined, right? Like, to an extent. But It could have been way worse. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Right. And what was amazing was after that happened, the thing that made the judge cry, I should have said this first, was that the father got off the stand and went and hugged the guy. Mm. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what law books you read, what systems you believe in. If you could not see the fact that that kid's life was changed right there, mm-hmm. I can't fucking help you. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so this brings up uh, uh, something that I was hoping that we would get into because uh, I think one thing that you do very well in this show is try to look for the nuance in situations. And typically, when I recommend this podcast to other people, I recommend it to people who are looking for nuanced conversations, which I would hope would be all of America. I think that you have to look at every situation from or attempt you have to attempt to look at every situation from both sides because i don't believe the world is black and white i don't believe you can live in black and white and i think a perfect example of that is a show that i'm watching right now for the first time and i'd be surprised if you haven't already watched it and that's the sopranos You'd be surprised if I would Bro, I've watched those 86 episodes probably 37 times yeah, a piece. Yeah, that's that's called par for the course. Um, I'm I'm not surprised at all, and I'm more surprised that I'm just now getting around yeah, to I it. Yeah, I can't believe that. That was an oversight on my part. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're good. And I let so, you down. I, 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 uh, it's been recommended to me, don't get me wrong. I've just never really gotten around to it, and I've never really put stock into it, and I'm... Um, almost done season three and i can very much so i just finished the pine barons episode oh <laughs> that's what sydney and i watched last night oh. and i can see why everyone loves it yeah but there's one thing about the sopranos that i don't think people are thinking about and and when we talk about nuance of crime i think about the sopranos because everyone loves tony soprano i mean they love him as as an actor uh, what's his name? James uh, Gandolfini. Yes, rest in peace. Um, um, James was incredible. Unreal. Um, it, it, it was truly. It's truly amazing to watch witness, uh, uh, to watch history happen in front of you as I am now for the first time. Um, but but what's interesting is that as I, a, a black American, watch this in 2021, first off, I'm I'm shocked at how relevant it still is today and how, how current it is. I mean, it's yeah. it's so far advanced for its time when it came out. But two, I'm thinking, I can now see why people used to call the Italians the blacks of the whites, right? Like, there's so much similarity over these stories where he ha- he grew up without a father. How many times do you hear about that in the black community? He grew up and he had nowhere else to go. He had no area where he fit in. And so he went into a life of crime and he owned that. And as Americans, we watch this story and we fall in love with this character because what The Sopranos does so well is it looks at the nuances of these situations. We It looks at this is the life that he chose and these are the situations that are put in front of him and he has to make decisions based off of this code. It's not too far off from the stories that we hear about the black community, but it's portrayed in a light with a white person that's so very different. And it's something that I, as a black male in 2021, am constantly looking at like, wow, like this is incredible that so many people identify themselves in this story or so many people can see why he's making the decisions that he's making that lead him down this life of crime, but they can't necessarily do that in reality. 
um, and, and, and in reality where the person is, has, a, has a darker skin complexion. It's, it's fascinating to me. Great, great show. Now, what was the – because we, we can go off on that all day. You just, <laughs> you just walked into the greatest show of all time. Yeah, which, yeah. By the way, I have held off. I am now – this has never happened before. I am four years deep without having watched it, <laughs> which means I'm going to – the you're longer gonna I now. go – You're going to watch now. Now you're going to watch. The, no, no. I'm still holding off. The long, I don't have time right now. But the longer I go, the better it's going to be when I do oh, it again. Oh, 100%. And you know, the reason why I started – sorry. The reason why I started it now is because um, they're coming out with a prequel. And yes, I believe in many October. Many Newark. Um, and so I want to try to finish it before then so that I could you know, get in on the action. My, my question was, though, what – what was the context you were bringing this up? I, I heard your final point on the nuance, nuance of it. Yeah. But are you, because we were talking about the judicial system before. So are you saying, I'm just trying he's, to relate it he's back. He's nuanced is what I'm saying is that he mm. recognized the nuance in that situation. He lost his son, which is arguably the worst thing that could happen to a person. As a, That's what you said. The the guy had his oh, son killed. About in court. Yep. Yeah, yep. in court. He lost his son, which is arguably the worst thing that could happen to a, to an adult is to lose their child. And rather than going into grief and to saying, lock him up, put him away for the rest of his life, which is as Americans, we're almost trained to do yes. too often. We're quick to say, he ruined my life. Let's ruin his. An eye for an eye is often what we're taught. Rather than going down that route, he looked at the nuance in that situation and said, he grew up in a completely different situation and he empathized with what happened now it would be interesting it would be interesting to see if this case happened 20 years ago and his 20 years are up and what his perspective is now as he got out free because what i'm also most interested in is those statistics you know does 20 years make a difference from life you know because at the end of the day taxpayers we're paying for that yes extra if he lives to be 100 he's 20 years old he does 20 years he gets out at 40 if he does 100 years you know i mean we're paying for those extra 60 years that he's alive and in prison i'm interested in those statistics and is 20 years enough is 20 years the equivalency of life and if so that takes a burden off the taxpayers dollars all right, we're on a complicated cyclone right now because of what you did, which I like. So I want to keep the cyclone going. Okay. And now I'm going to pull it back to your Sopranos example. Because okay. now I understood what you were saying when you were saying it first. I was just then. But connecting. I was trying to connect them back. And yeah, now my I, mind can kind of. I like that. I like that. It makes us think. So now I understand exactly what the parallel was there. And so to go back to Tony Soprano for a second, people who watch that show, 99.99999% of them, don't know what it's like to be a mobster and would never be one. And, Myself and, included. You know, right? So, you know, there's some guys in North Jersey. Right? <laughs> could say other things about sure, But uh, that's sure. neither here nor there. But, sure. you know, th they're watching that show, and yet, even though he's this guy living in this forbidden world that's really from the 20th century, and now we're going into the 21st, mm -hmm. you identify with him. Mm -hmm. And you identify with him because the way David Chase built that show is he didn't want to make this about a mobster. He wanted to make it about a guy going through a midlife crisis who has psychological issues and just happens to be, in the context of the plot line, mm -hmm. a fucking psychotic criminal mobster. Right. And so what he did is he took things that the average 45, 50-year-old male who hates themselves and maybe doesn't like their wife anymore in this country 
thinks, which is a sad thing to say, <laughs> and also women as well towards men. Let's keep it equal here. That's like right. dead ass serious. These people who are like, well, I'm thinking that shit too. They see this battle, and what ends up happening is they start rooting for Tony Soprano, which I did too, and I continue to do so because you love him as a character. Sure. He's a scumbag of a human being. Like, he's a horrible person. Sure. But you recognize that, like, well, number one, there were things that pushed him to get there, mm -hmm. which you still have to take responsibility for yourself. But mm -hmm. there are things that pushed him to get there, and there are things he struggles with that show humanity in him that no matter where we are, or who we are, or what we do, or how criminal or uncriminal we are, non-criminal we are, we can relate to that. Right. And so when you're talking about like the nuance of it, David Chase, and it's why I hope to God The Many Saints of Newark is a great movie, because like you don't fucking paint over the second coating of the Mona Lisa. I know. Right? And I think Many Saints is going to be great. That trailer looks awesome. But I hope it is. But David Chase... Hit, had a perfect game. Mm -hmm. he, he, he portrayed a masterpiece that was built off of his own experiences growing up in North Jersey and I understanding these people. I mean, I lived That's up there, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. drove by 13 Aspen all the time, mm -hmm. right? Like I was in these neighborhoods and that's like the nice one. That's where he lived. But I was in these places. I right. know the places where they shot in the film. I lived right by the George Washington Slept Here house, that's right? Dope. So he nailed it. Mm -hmm. Like he fucking nailed it. And yet in the middle of nailing like the setting and everything, he nailed the guy who appealed to everyone around the country and in other countries because they were feeling human things. Right. So now to bring it all the way back around to the courtroom example, listen, dude, I don't, who am I to say fuck you to somebody who's like lock them up for life yeah. who just had their yes. kid killed? Yes. I'm not going to be that guy. However, not to say that all the decisions to lock someone up for life in that situation are wrong. So a lot of them are probably right. I don't know. But I'm also going to be the guy to say that's why you're not a part of the solving of the problem here because right. you are emotionally biased. Sure. Nothing wrong with that. Same reason why when you have a hostage situation, you don't have the fucking parents of the kid play hostage right. negotiator. Right. Right? So those people are perfectly fine to feel that way, which makes it all the more amazing that that father had the empathy that mm -hmm. he did. Mm -hmm. And I I was pointing at you when you brought up that word because it, it should come up more on this show. I try to bring it up, but you know it goes where it goes, and I guess it doesn't come up enough. But the lack of empathy in this society for beliefs – is absurd and you can relate this to all things and and, and it's hard I, I don't want to dismiss the lack of empathy as if it's something that's so easy because especially now and i can imagine it's going to only get worse as technology blossoms it's very hard to have empathy when you live in a bubble or you live in a mm. uh in a small circle where you only see one thing i can't expect someone from uh suburbia myself included i didn't grow up in and i mean i grew up in the city of philadelphia i grew up in roxborough though which is like on the outskirts so i'm not going to pretend like i'm this like hard gangster or anything like that but it, it it's i can i can see a world that exists why it's hard for people to fully understand shows like the wire Right, which is very Brilliant similar. Show. 
great show. Everyone, you know, most people have it as a top tier show, but it, but it doesn't. People don't typically get into the mindset of, of a character like Stringer Bell in the same way that they do with Tony Soprano. And part of that is because Tony Soprano's a main character. The show's built around him. You get to see every aspect of his life. Stringer Bell, he's not necessarily a main character. You don't get to see every aspect of his life, but. That being said, it's also just it's they're completely different, and and it's a lot. I can imagine that that it would be a lot harder for someone who's never experienced this to associate themselves or see themselves within Tony Soprano than they would with with Stringer Bell. It's a great point. I never contrasted those two either. I I mean. I have because of uh, the time that I'm watching it, being a black individual, I ha- like as soon as I watch it, I'm like, okay, right now I see why it's a one and two. Now yes. I see why the top tier shows because they do a good job of showing the nuances of these situations. It's incredible. The Wire, I I've talked about that on this show three or four times before. I will die on that hill. That is one of the greatest things I've ever seen. It's period. so good, and I watched it in Baltimore. Oh my god, you got because you were down there. I was there. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I was there. But uh, dude. That is something that should be required watching for everyone because Honestly. there are actors in it, but it is a fucking documentary. It's I, it's it, it's so good, and and the wire. Specific, I can't. I haven't finished Sopranos, so I can't speak on it entirely. But the way that the wire sets it up in the different stages, how each season kind of has a theme, and being in Baltimore and seeing it happen, it's just like, like you said, it's like a documentary. It's it's spot on. There are two scenes in there. I mean, there's a lot more than two scenes, but there's two on this subject matter that are famous scenes in there that stand out that I think speak to so many different things. And before I say them, I will say this. I I watched that show towards the beginning of my freshman year of college, Mm. and I watched it. I watched that the senior, my senior year. Bro, I watched it in like four weeks. I mean, I was like every free moment, I'm like, this is unbelievable. Yeah. And I called up my dad, who's like, my dad is like, how would I describe him? He's a regular, just Republican guy who's just kind of he lives in his world a little bit, yeah. like like in a in a beautiful way. By the Which way, which is easy to do if you know this neighborhood. Sure, sure. Actually, because we're yes, not in an yes. urban environment where you're getting all of these things. I mean, this house is beautiful, right? Yeah. And it's and it's in a location where it's very easy to only connect social, like like via uh, technology. What's funny though is is my dad grew up in a completely biracial town, mm. so he has that like when it comes to like social issues. I don't know how I want to say this. He kind of, I, I don't know the words I'm looking for because I'm going to say them wrong. Don't get me kicked out of this. No, house. no, 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 no. no. <laughs> when it comes to social issues, he was just always so supportive of them mm-hmm. that. I think in his mind, he's like, well, everyone should just always be supportive of that. Like, even, mm. a, and, and like I say this now just because people lump in like being a conservative, like Trump and all that. Right. Nuance. It's like kind of an, an, an assumption to him. Like, you should just, everyone's the same. Right. Like, do your thing. Like, his friends were all white and black. And it's like, that's what the fuck. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he has like a very beautiful kind of almost like rose colored glasses view of things Mm -hmm. and so what's interesting is i remember pointing that show out to him and and he's like it's about what and and i'm like the drug trade in baltimore it's fucking crazy he's like well why why do you think i would want to watch that i'm like it's just good and i'm telling you dude i think he got through the first three seasons also in like three weeks Mm. and he was like 
I can't believe shit is like this. Mm. And it's amazing what a, like, technically a, a fictional, technically, right. a fictional TV show can do to but show not. you that a place that's, by the way, like 75 minutes from here yeah, right. has a six block radius that's beautiful. And then, I mean, just a city that's in tatters because it's a systemized thing. Oh, 100%. It's something that's going on over and over and over again. And so I say that because even like people who could never think of that stuff based on where they're from or whatever, when you expose yourself to experiences like that, you understand, like you are forced to understand that like, okay, even if we don't live in Iraq and we don't, there is nuance, mm. even in this country. There are even situations that we got to look at and say, well, why is that? And what does that have to do with systems that we have passively condoned or condoned, mm -hmm. you know? And it doesn't make everyone a bad person. It means like, all right, well, how can we fix that? Right. You know, this is America. And, and like, not for nothing, you see those devastating videos out of Afghanistan and, you know, the, the chaos at the airport. Right. And you see these people holding on to moving airplanes right. just to get the fuck out of the country to try to get to America on a moving jet that they have no chance of staying on once it gets up to a certain air pressure because falling off that jet mm -hmm. and dying is going to be better than staying where they're at. Yeah. And they know that, they by know the way. That. It's not like, let's not pretend that these are, are, are dumb individuals. They fully understand the situation at, at hand. Um but that, my, my point is they don't know – like we – just because that's true doesn't mean that still here we may have the best system. We can't look to improve it in places where we've fallen behind. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. And that's the biggest point. It's, it's the biggest point that you can say. And the reason why I say that is because so often – and this is – I will admit a, a, definitely an old school train of thought. And I would hope that by the time our children have children, this train of thought is completely gone. Hope so. Patriotism doesn't mean that you have to be absolutist. Yes. We don't have to pretend that if you don't – if you say a bad thing about your country, you don't love your country. In my opinion, patriotism is trying to improve – and the only way we can improve is if we look at our worst things, whatever you think the worst thing about America is, looking at that thing and coming up a, coming up with a way to improve that thing. Yes. Because as the saying goes, which is 100% true, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Whatever that weakest link is, you have to pay attention into it, pour resources into it, and fix it. Because as long as that weak link exists, it brings our whole nation down. That's going to be a TikTok. <laughs> That's the first time I ever said that, but that was so fucking brilliant. I'm just going to let I'm that. I'm playing off of you. I'm going to let that one run. You, that was that You was said great. it. All I'm here to do is is to emphasize it because you're 100% right. That's 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 true patriotism. And and it's super hard for me to understand anything else. When you're when when I go now, I just came back from the Finger Lakes up in uh upstate New York. I know the Finger Lakes is not. I I've said it as if it's there. a thing. I how, said How is that? It's 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 very interesting and i'll say why interesting is um, a funny word it's it's very interesting as a black american it's very interesting so right so i was up where like f i think 40 minutes north of of syracuse up in a small town called skinny atlas um not too far from cornell university mm -hmm. um and when we when i got in it was like 9 30 at night right and so it, it when i and, and the reason i bring this up was because when i came in i'm seeing trump this trump that and in my head i'm like trump like 
he lost. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like no, like no. And, and, and yeah. maybe I'm too young to remember. Maybe after Obama, uh, maybe, maybe after Ob- Obama lost, people were still having Obama. No. I don't remember it. Um, um, I I won't discredit if people say, "Oh, I saw Obama flags." My thing is, he's Trump's Obama, not our- Obama never lost. There would have never I'm been sorry. a McCain flag. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to correct it for well, you. Well, yeah. well, what I'm what yeah. I'm trying to say is that I don't remember seeing. I don't remember still seeing Obama flags. Bumper mm. stickers is a different is a different sign. But when Trump was in presidency, I don't remember people still having Obama flags, and maybe they did. But my point is that it's not it, it's not like American. Like we have this. Not we, because I don't have these flags, but. Americans have these flags, these Confederate flags, these Trump flags of people or or institutions that are no longer necessarily relevant for the current times, which I find very interesting. Can I cut you off for please, one second? Please. So and and this is maybe like the fourth time I've had to say this in an episode. One place where I will just draw the line so hard is the Confederate flag. I agree with free speech, do what you want to do. Absolutely. And that applies to everything. Same. So like if someone wants to put a I'm not even going to say some stuff, put ideas in people's heads, but whatever. Like, there's, it's such a bad idea, I will laugh at them, and most sane-minded people will, too. Like flat earthers. Right, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Same category, but sure. probably a little more evil. <laughs> but, like, I just will never understand people flying around a Confederate flag. I, I just, for, for the life of me, it is, like, the most, even if you're not a bad person and you're just a fucking moron, mm-hmm. and there's another word I'm looking for that we're not allowed to say anymore, but that's what you are, like... Even if that's the case, why? Like what? Like what is like? I always ask myself, history, bro. What is the upside? It's history. What is the upside? Is there any upside to what I'm doing right now? Is there any upside? Right. There's no upside. Right. You know what I mean? So like, and I say that because I understand what you're saying about the Trump flag and stuff too. But I, I also don't even want to take away from the seriousness of that and draw a false equivalency and be like, all right, well, someone who just really liked the last president and is upset they lost is the same as someone who's, who's flying but the Confederate why? flag. But why? Why do we like presidents mm. so much? That's, that's a fair weird, question. bro. That's, that's For me, question. that's weird. Like I, like, I loved Obama. It was great to see the first black president. That That is a piece of history truthfully a a positive piece of history for this country i'm not gonna have obama flags in my house i don't have any obama uh things hanging up in my window if you have a bumper sticker that you bought back then and you want to keep it around because it's history fine same thing with trump if you have a trump bumper sticker fine but putting a flag up when like his time is over is something that i can't wrap my head around you know what i think it is it's a combination of two things number one he technically has another term of eligibility. True. So people don't think he's dead. That's so true. I'm, I think he's dead. But let's kind of hope that's that chapter's behind us. But, but I mean, anyway. if they re, if they bring it back out when he runs again, I'd be fine with that. Okay, but I'm saying but like you. in the meantime, they're sure. making the case. Sure. Right. Sure. And that's the right. Showing to like, do hey, it. you're still popular. Come come back around. We we want you. I I can see that. I also think that Trump was it was a hurricane. He was a far different thing because he drove a lot of people into his arms mm. who even in 2016 or 2017 after he won if you would have asked them then are you ever going to like this guy they said get the fuck out of here <laughs> he drove people into his arms not because he's this great guy he's one of the most flawed people you've ever seen on the public stage sure he drove people into his arms because the other side got so intolerable in the constant 
berating of every single thing he did. And I will raise this point by saying that to this day, I find myself a couple times a month in a conversation. It hasn't happened a hell of a lot on this podcast, mm -hmm. but I will find myself in a conversation where I have to defend him. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to talk about him. Right, like, I, right. I don't want to talk. I, honestly, like, I'm not a huge fan of Biden, although it hasn't been as bad as I thought it was going to be. Like, it's been okay, mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't want to talk about people who I'm not a fan of. But when people, like, it's never enough to go 150, right? It, they have to go 600. Mm -hmm. And it's like, then people will be like, he did this, this, and that. I'll be like, well, wait, no, no, he didn't. Right. Hold on. Hold on a minute. Right. And it's I didn't. Polar. He's polarized. That's what I'm saying. He's polarized. I could do that about Obama because I was a fan of Obama's first term. Right. I was not a fan of his second term. Right. But I and that and that's why I was I was a Trump guy in 2016, I which I figured out because mm -hmm. I'm like I didn't know that at the time. But I was more repelled, not even by Obama. I'll give him credit. Mm -hmm. Obama is actually on record being like an open dialogue guy. Right. You know, it was more like the people behind him and his party who went the other way and they repelled me. And so I'm like, this guy's a savior, right? Right. And so that ended up being wrong. But the idea of what repelled me, I think I was still kind of right about. And I remember like looking at his presidency and like I didn't feel like I had to defend him a ton. You know what I mean? Like I felt like it was pretty straightforward and now it's so hard the other way that the reason i say all this is because these people who are wearing the flags it's a defiant thing right because they've been told by the elites you're less than you're mm -hmm. nothing you're whatever you don't know shit mm -hmm. and these are the same people who got ignored for years and right. it's not by the way it's not just a racial thing too though i think that is that is certainly an aspect here because mm -hmm. let's be honest a lot of them are kind of middle america or sure. upstate america white people mm -hmm. i always look at the signs we missed in i mean it was before this but in 2011 because it, have you ever read dr stephen pinker no from harvard mm -mm. i'm gonna send you like i'm gonna send you his yeah please do it's it's incredible please he do. he writes about he writes data backed okay about how humanity has continually progressed so in a way, he constantly reminds us that, hey, I know we're complaining about all these things right now. We're right. Mm -hmm. But look where it was 20 years ago. Look right. at how everything from sustenance around the world to, you know, supply of water to basic availability to live, not just in this country. I'm talking like the most unfortunately poor places in the world. How right. we've improved. One of the things that he identified that really changed my life, though, was the data behind the wealth gap. Mm. And what he found, and the graph, it's inarguable. It's a fact. This is not an opinion. It's mm -hmm. a fact. Since the 1980s, and the graph that he used, the primary one, was from 1988, though okay. you can draw it sooner than, or later than then as well. The wealth gap, if people are listening and not watching right now, I'm making a V. It went like that. Okay. And so in 2008, 2009, when the whole economy crashed, everything went to shit. But the people who were able to come out of that ahead not event not right away but eventually were the people who already had a lot of means to money right so it increased the wealth gap tremendously and by the way i've said this before some people like to hit obama for that i'll defend obama forever on that because he inherited that mm. there was nothing he could do i know he put all bankers in his cabinet i know that wasn't a great look but like who the unfortunately who the fuck else was going to fix that mm -hmm. and they didn't fix it but who the fuck else was like going to make it somewhat okay right right, right? So, logically Logically and statistically, he did what he didn't fix, and it was started far longer than before he was in there. 
is the fact that it kept going in that V. Right. And so in 2011, you saw two movements form. You saw the Tea Party and you saw Occupy Wall Street. Mm. The Tea Party was these quote-unquote country bumpkin, middle-aged or older-age individuals who had been left behind by automation and the government. Mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street was these urban liberals who were coming out of college with all this debt and they were young and pissed off and had been left behind by the system. Their ideas on solutions were opposite, mostly. Not all of it, but a lot of it was opposite. Their problems were the same. And what they didn't realize is that they had much more in common than they did differently, and they drew it along lines like race and on geography and things like that. And then what happened was in 2016, the two people who probably should have been the two final candidates, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, who were opposites, came out and spoke to the same problems to the same people and they just divided That's interesting. Them. And so I look at this and I see that you talk about the Trump flags and the reason I bring this up is because I wonder if it would be the same with Sanders and to an extent and on a smaller scale it is sometimes. These people didn't see Sanders and Trump as like the candidate for president. Right. They saw them as the savior who saw the world the way they did and actually – whether or not they walked the talk with what they said and I can make the argument that both of them in certain ways haven't. They saw the world the way those people did, and they saw them. Right. They didn't say they didn't look this way while the people were looking at them from over here and saying, "Can you hear me?" They actually heard them and they spoke to those right. problems. Right. And so I get it. Like the tribal nature of Trump is that, and you saw it with Sanders in 2016 when mm -hmm. he got fucked over. You saw people who didn't come out and vote for Hillary. Right. And they had to this day have the Sanders flags. Yeah. Those people didn't view Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump as like the president. They viewed them as the God. Right. But I still hold by my statement, Bernie or Trump, that it's weird. It's oh, weird. Oh, it is. It's it is. For, no, no, for no, me, no it's, it is. For it me, is. it's weird. It and and, it and the reason why it's weird is because it's like I, I you're, you're basically putting the president on a pedestal, which which we do. And, and, and I understand that we do that, but I think is very problematic because – we we make the president out to be something that it's not supposed to be. Um, we blame all of our problems on the president, and and I say it only because you know hopefully one day we'll have a female president, right? Yeah. And so it, we we blame all of our problems on the president. We also like to glorify the president, but realistically, it's just a position. And and the sooner that we as America come to the realization of that, the sooner we can try to move on because this whole idea of it is 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 weird. And and something else that you said to me that um, kind of resonated with me was about um, kind of like their intent. Um, and and Dylan kind of talked about that in in his in his episode with you about not for nothing. That was one of the best things I've ever heard. What. That what he said. Yeah, about that two minutes is two of the best minutes on this podcast. So I, I, I didn't actually get to it. I just heard the the clip, and uh, but 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 intent versus impact is something like if you're really into like social justice and things like that is a conversation that often comes up. Or maybe it's not social justice. Maybe it has to do with my like Jesuit education. But intent versus impact was something that we talked about a lot. Um, and 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 you think about. It can be oversimplified, and I almost feel like Dylan almost oversimplified the issue because there is something to be said about the impact that you have on another person where it rivals the intent that you had. I understand mm. where he was coming from, where he was saying that you know the in intent is extremely important and often gets left out, and I get that, and I do implore 
individuals who are impacted in a certain way to think about other people's intent because we're not perfect. And oftentimes we expect other people to say things or portray things. And we talked about this about podcasts, about people saying things uh, or portraying things in a certain way and not looking at what they intended to mean by it. I do think what Dylan said was correct, that we have to understand where people are coming from with their intent. But that's not to say that the sayer, in this case, the Trump flag holder, it, it, there's something to say about how that impacts other people. And if you are the type of person where you're not a Confederate, you're not a racist, you just truthfully believe that Trump is a guy who saw you for who you were and you hold him close to your heart, that's great. There's no way as me, as a person who sees that Trump flag and feels unsafe, because I know oftentimes that Trump flag is associated with that Confederate flag, which ultimately leads to you being a racist, makes me feel uncomfortable to the point where I feel like I shouldn't even be here anymore. So where I would push back very quickly to be careful, and I'll, sure. and I'll hedge sure. for you, is that when we say it's it's often associated with a confederate flag or often associated with being a racist that's probably a little bit unfair okay now stereotypically stereotypically i'm with you do i see like let's paint the most common actually uh, do i see it on the back of pickup trucks two of them right yes and 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 i won't i actually won't say stereotypically i will speak from my personal perspective and say that the people that i know personally who are putting that on the back of pickup trucks because i did go to all white institutions my entire life and i was in an all-white institution during trump uh trump's coming into presidency the people that i know are those types of people and And, and i shouldn't and i should not have overgeneralized and i and i will and i appreciate you for pointing that out i shouldn't say that this is the case mostly in america i will say that is mostly the case in my life so thank you that's a fair anecdotal experience though because and like, as long as we say that, you know, no, and I appreciate th- you that 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 can happen. I mean, I I had Ashton Laro on here, and we got into like an hour long conversation about cops. Now, on this show, I've been a little bit hard on cops, and the reason we started to talk about this earlier, but the reason I am is not because all of them are bad, right? But because I do have a big issue with the fact that there are a there's a bad percentage of them who don't they, they cover for the for the ones for the who are ones. bad you sure. know what the i mean the wall of silence right yeah exactly the blue, the wall, blue of wall of silence and i i think we touched on that when you and i were in here last but like to expand upon it it's good to refresh i try not to overgeneralize with it but i find myself doing it and he was a good guy to have in here because through personal experience mm-hmm. by the way he really doesn't like cops. Like mm. he's far, he's he's definitely farther than I am, mm-hmm. and so I got to play like at least a little bit of devil's, devil's advocate, advocate, right? And one of the things he said is that there's a quote going around that they actually fucked up in this country, which is that all cops are bastards. He's like, that's not what it was. Mm-hmm. It emanated from Europe, right. and the quote was supposed to be the it was like the police system is bastardized, right? And then once he explained that, it made more sense because he was saying the point of that is he's like, people make this bad apples argument. Mm -hmm. He goes, well, if you have bad apples in a barrel, they can't make all the other ones bad. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So he's like, he's like, when I say fuck all cops, I know some cops are okay. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm more biased, but that also means that like there's enough that are covering for the bad ones Mm -hmm. that we have a problem here. And so I think it's a similar thing. To when you talk about Trump, where people who may be projecting that for all the right reasons, 
probably understand that there are some people who are projecting it for the wrong reasons right. too and don't talk about it. What I would be very curious about though, and you're right, we didn't really see this. I can't think of any examples on this to be honest with you. But if Pete – let's say Obama had lost to Romney, which that would have been hilarious <laughs> if that happened. Right. Sorry. But, but let's right. say he had lost to him. Sure. And you saw Obama flags in 2013, 2014. Would we be judging them the same way? We wouldn't. No. And, 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 and truthfully, but I will say – Some of that's fair why, though. Some of that's reason, fair. Well, I would say the reason why is – I mean he actually was history, right, as the first black – president of the united states there is an instance where it's like it's history but i mean to be to to, to play devil's advocate with myself there are good people out there who support trump for the reasons just like you said just there was a conversation i had on another podcast maybe it was with josh i don't remember but i was saying if i were if i were a black person who had made it out of a really bad situation Right. And I was like a social worker. And I might be changing the example right now, but the idea is going to be the same. And I dealt with people all the time who were judged on the basis of the color of their skin unfairly. Mm-hmm. I would consider it a sin against God to vote for Donald Trump. Mm. If I were a coal miner, and it's the most stereotypical example, but Obviously. if I were a coal miner in West Virginia who had been not even – given the cur- the courtesy to hear go fuck yourself <laughs> right. for the last 20 years from Washington, I would probably consider it a sin against God to not vote for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And it underscores the point that I think you started this whole thing with, which is that we deified the people right. and the position, but the people too. Mm-hmm. And it really changed with Trump and Sanders, and obviously Trump won, so it's on a whole nother level mm-hmm. with him. And that's what I was hoping to get across, adding to your point. And it's like... That's the problem because a lot of these people will then eventually go along with that because they're told fuck you for right, doing it. Right. But the re- the motivations they have are based on where they're from and what they're about and not necessarily that this guy says stupid shit. Right. Because listen, I'll admit I can point to a lot more from Trump that he said really stupid that also could be viewed in a lot of different lenses that right. are not positive. Obama said shit like that too, but I'm mm-hmm. not going to hold him the same way. I'm not going to hold him to that standard. What I will say is that Trump my, – my biggest criticism of him is that when you have enough people telling you, hey, look, I know you were like a New York real estate guy your whole life. You kind of – like not even president. You're running for president. No, you can't say that. Right. And you still say it. There is a point where it becomes your fault. Yeah. And so I don't have any sympathy for him. But yeah. with Obama, like same thing. He just had much better control on it, and mm-hmm. he does deserve a lot of credit for that. He was never – you never got a tweet from Obama along the lines of, if you don't vote for me, your suburbs are going to go away because right. they're going to bring in all the whatever, low-income right, housing. Right. You never got that from him. It's all really interesting, honestly. I don't know. It's – it's it's there like you said, there's a lot of nuance in the situation. It's just hard for me to wrap my head around the whole thing because then you get into a game of what if that can go on forever. Yeah. And you know what we're doing it with right now? Mm. This whole Afghanistan thing. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of fucked up because, and again, I think you can have a lot of thoughts that contradict themselves on this and you should. Mm -hmm. I think, I think Biden absolutely fucked up the, the pullout here. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty clear. I think that is horrific what's happening there. And from a human, from a humanitarian perspective, it is 
devastating. It is. It's devastating. Just like those images that you talked about. I mean, you can't argue with that. You can't argue with that. I think you can also say that Obama and Trump both had a dream of pulling out of there. Mm -hmm. That was clear. And Trump was able to actually – a positive of his presidency was he was able to start putting the plans together to be able to do that and end this endless war because – one thing about America, we are awful nation builders, mm. so it's also not our job. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I see a lot this week. I do see some interesting tweets, some funny tweets that point back to George Bush, but I don't see enough of that because it's like, well, where did this start and where did it start to go wrong? Mm. And what we then turn it into in the cells in the media is like, well, it's Biden's fault or it's Trump's fault. Right. Prisoner think, of the moment. Exactly. That's what we call that. I, and they all seize on it, too. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. all blame each other. Mm-hmm. None of them are innocent here. You saw, I mean, Trump doesn't have any attention anymore because he was fucking censored. But right. it's a different issue. But, you know, he came out on whatever the fuck and was blaming Biden and Biden came out and, and, and nudged Trump. And it's like, okay, like they're all political animals. They're going to sure. do that. But I see everyone breaking themselves up about it. And suddenly everyone's an expert on Afghanistan, mm. which they probably haven't thought of in like over a decade. Literally. I've thought of it a little bit, but I won't call myself an expert by any stretch yeah, of the imagination. You saw what I said. I was like, I'm just, I can't. Yeah, man. But it's a prime example of what we do with tribalism in politics now because it can never be like, hey, all right, there's a lot fucked up here. Mm-hmm. There's some things that like, you know, there were things, Biden's speech the other night when he talked about, I'm not going to pass this on to a fifth president. Right. I don't care if he was doing it for political points. I do agree with that point. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, there, there, there are the way that we went about doing this was not necessarily the wrong way. But if you're a hundred percent on one side or a hundred percent on the other side, then you have no clue what you're talking about, because the situation is so complex, and and a lot of these situations are so complex. And so, I try to put myself in that in that seat, making those decisions. And when you think about the decisions that 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 Biden had to make, it's really unfair. But at the same time, he—I mean—he made the decision, so he's got to sit with it. And and he kind of—he kind of said that. He kind of said, you know, I, yeah, the buck did. stops with me. I'm the he president. Did. I made the decision. I, you know, this is going to be on his legacy, and to a certain degree, it should. But I think what you were alluding to is that there was so much that led up to this, and he was put in, in an unfair situation. And if you can't see that, you clearly don't understand what's going on. Yeah, I. I... I don't know how often I've said this, but it should be said more often. I, I just don't – at this point, like data is data, and I'm not sure you'll ever see a more – I hope you'll never see a more damaging presidency by data on like an economic and social discourse presidency than George Bush. And I know people on the second part will say you're crazy because Trump just happened. I'm serious, man. Everything ties back to finances, mm. and George Bush – got us in endless wars, Mm. fucked up everything along the way, and then managed to screw the economy in a way that hadn't been seen since the Great Depression and in a way was every bit as bad. We just couldn't physically see it as much as you could in the Great Depression because of resources that are available now. But, you know, this whole buck, I I can't help but think this week, just be reminded again by how damaging that was. And I know, like, a lot of it was Dick Cheney. He still hired the guy. Right. Right. He still hired the guy. And so sometimes I see us like fighting over, you know, these Obama Trump crowds. And I'm like, I mean, Jesus Christ, guys, like, look where this started. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it it just, 
I don't know. Weeks like this make me sad because it reminds me that everything is going to be spun. Right. Right. I already know that. Yeah. But like then you see it, you see people falling off of helicopters or planes and you're like they're still spinning it. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. sick. Which is why in in all honesty and you can fault me for this, the listeners can fault me for this, but I just I don't listen and when you hit me up for another episode, I would gladly i'll come on the show as many times as you'll have me but i i'm not keeping up with i'm not keeping up with reading or watching current events because it just it's so sickening how it's spun and it's really hard for me to watch any channel and feel like i'm giving information for information's sake with no agenda to it right and you talk about this a lot on your podcast and i don't want to beat a dead horse but, Do it. but 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 it's it's really hard for me to the point where i feel like the only way i can get my information is for sydney to tell me and then it's like okay this is my fiance i can argue with her and tell her oh this doesn't make sense because of this because then it's like a filtered thing okay she understood this article to mean this i'll give pushback to her and i'm not fighting an organization and that's truthfully how i get all of my information these days. I literally can't tell you the last time I've seen CNN or Fox News, not on TV, not in an article. I, it, it's it's too much. It's it's become to be information overload. And and I kind of talked about this um, in in the last episode I'm on. This is a, a plug for all of you who haven't watched the last episode to go watch episode ten. It, you know what? I was bad. I, it was early for me. This guy was a fucking pro. Though. <laughs> like I still get compliments on that episode. And it ain't because of me. Episode anyway. ten was a good episode, and I'm not biased in saying that. Brushing off the shoulder, but um, but but truthfully, I I said this back then. Lost the point just like that. But the, the the point that I'm trying to make is that there are so many silos out there that it's very hard to get your news unfiltered. Yes. And, and so I got into a point where I'm just like, screw it all. I'll get the information that I get. When people tell me about certain things, when the thing about Haiti came up, um, um, just like you said, you would be remiss without talking about the situation in Afghanistan. I feel the same way about Haiti and, and the earthquake. I was devastated when I heard, and I heard it through Sydney. I didn't get the news alert. I didn't see it on the on the news or anything like that. Sydney told me, hey, there had been an earthquake. I reached out to the people that I knew who had family out there, and I told them that I thought about them. And that's really the only way I feel comfortable getting information, because otherwise I feel like somebody is planting thoughts in my head and I'm not the type of guy that likes to feed to to, to to get my information fed to me. I like to seek it out and I like to 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 filter it and to understand it and then to make my own opinions about it. I don't want someone else telling me this is how you should think about something. And so few news sources give you that information unfiltered. And it's unfortunate, but that's that's how I feel today. And I know I'm not alone about it. You're not, but you're also too much of a rarity. Not that other people aren't like that. There are. There right. are a lot more people than we think. But that's why I value your perspective so, so much. And that's why you were so popular the first time you were on here and why people you know, who found the show later went back and they're like, this guy's fire. Because you do have a point of view. You, you fall on the liberal side of the spectrum, Absolutely, which is yeah. exactly what I want. I want people from the liberal and conservative sides and everyone in between on sure. here. But you have an ability to, in a lawyerly w way, right. build a case and understand what the other case is too. And so that's why – and I'm, I'm biased to say this, but I'm, I'm fucking right. I'll die on this hill. 
I hope that in the future, guys like you will run for office. Mm-hmm. Even if everyone who's listening to the show wouldn't vote for you. Like some of them wouldn't vote for you. Sure. Some of sure. them would, some of them wouldn't. Whatever would happen, people might know that if you weren't corrupted by the power that goes into there, which I'm sure some people do, so don't fucking do that. Yeah, but, right. you know, if you weren't corrupted by that, like right. they'll know like, okay, this is a person that is going to listen to the ideas. Right. And that, you know what? That was always something that made me a little more comfortable about Obama after the fact because I did know somebody that my dad knew went to school with him mm-hmm. at Harvard and she talked about how and again this is in college a lot can change since then I'm sure it did but his MO at Harvard was that in these rooms even back in the day people who were conservative would sit on the right side right, right. liberal would sit on the left he would sit in the middle yeah and he it was clear he fell on the liberal side of the spectrum, no doubt about it. But he was the guy who would listen to everyone else and then restate the cases. And even if he was taking the left side, mm-hmm. create it in a forum where everyone could appreciate it and right. see that they were heard. Mm-hmm. And it's like when I look at people on the left and right side, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. That's more than and, – and unfortunately, that's not what sells anymore. No. I mean you you even see it now like – one of the things that concerns me the most is cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Well, it's now started to infect both sides. It yeah. started left for years. Now it's right. You see Liz Cheney do what she did, and she went to get and and you know I'm never going to equate someone with their father. Mm-hmm. Let's get that straight. Mm-hmm. They're a different person. Yeah. I, I fucking hate Dick Cheney. I Liz Cheney's that. a different person, right? She does something that's unpopular, whether you agree with it or not. She took a stance on something. And they went to cancel her. Mm-hmm. And I worry about this now because it's like they're going so far apart on these two sides that now they're they're meeting each other mm-hmm. on the other side. And to me, when we start shutting down ideas or operating different opinions, right. that's a problem. Yeah, it's, it's really hard. And I remember what I was going to say about episode 10, which was that I talked about making sure that you find your passion and advocate that passion and not being too afraid to be a generalist to say, oh, I know everything about all of these topics, rather than to diving into a topic like for mine, it's social justice and making sure that the African American community can find some sort of equity. That is my passion. That's what I know. And so when, you know, Julian hit me up and was like, hey, I, you know, I kind of want to talk about Afghanistan. I hit him up and I was like, I, I know what's going on in Afghanistan, but I'm not an expert on this topic. And so it, I would feel uncomfortable to give an opinion about something that I haven't delved into, looked at resources on both sides, and then said, okay, this is my opinion on this thing. And that's kind of the thing that scares me the most about the president or presidencies and these debates, because I'm like, how can this person know everything about every topic? And that's what we expect of him or her Mm-hmm. when they go to these debates. And so when people used to come up to me, even in college, and was like, oh, yeah, Ter- I could see Terrence becoming president. I'm like, I don't know if I could see myself being president because I'm not going to to sell myself out and pretend to know things that I don't know. And I'm not sure that our country is, is ready to vote for a guy as earnest as I'm going to be. I'm never going to be in a situation and give an opinion and say, oh, yeah, uh, I have an advisor. And that I'm like in my head, I'm thinking I have an advisor. My advisor says I should be this way on the word on drugs because it'll get me 100,000 more votes if I say that. If I haven't done that research myself, I'm not saying it. And 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 as much as we as Americans like to think, oh, I want that guy as president, the truth is in the pudding. We don't have that. 
Right now, the people that we put up in, in that seat are people that we think align with us in the most topics when realistically, these views are not all coming from them. And that's just the realist, uh, the realism of that situation. Bro, I think you just unknowingly pointed out a not the whole reason, but a big reason of the psychology of why Trump won. Uh, yeah, 100%. Yes. Because all these other guys, they'll speak to you. They'll give you the, the politician face goes on they'll dance. and they're like, you know. We're looking at this very, very closely, and you have to understand the people of whatever country think this, this, and they'll start to go on yeah, all these. Donnie Trump seemed like a human being. Donald Trump, I will never forget when I want to say it was John Harwood in a debate during like the primaries asked him about Cuba, and you see his face. If a face could take a shit, a face took a <laughs> shit, and he just looks at him, and then suddenly, like he goes into game mode, and he's like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, like listening to the question. <laughs> And for like 45 seconds, he repeated in some different fashion in the line of, you know, Cuba is a great country. We're looking at it. We have a lot of smart people. I know a lot of smart people. We're doing great things. Obviously, Castro, bad dictator, but we're, we're, we're doing some things right, here. Right. We're looking into it. I'm going to get hey, John, John, John. I'm going to get the best people. I'm going to get the best people on it. Little marker over here. He doesn't have the best people. I have the best people. <laughs> we will look into it and I will get John, right. John, I will get back to it. John. I'm going to get back to you. And like he filled that air. And even if people at home like know, like that guy just took a verbal shit on mm -hmm. TV, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, that's just like me. I don't fucking know what's right. going on in Cuba. Right. right. And so what's amazing is his unqualification of not looking into some issues, which some things where Cuba maybe isn't one of them because it was a smaller issue, but other things it's like, yeah, you probably should have looked into right. that. It actually had the reverse psychological effect. Of people being like, this motherfucker's just like me. Yeah, Let's yeah, do it. Yeah. And that should be a big red light to all politicians going, you know what? I don't, don't have, have to, to know perfect. everything. That's my hope. Truthfully, that is my hope. And, th and that is one thing that I saw about that where I thought like when I saw Trump become president, like you would think if I saw as I saw Obama become president, I was like, damn, if Obama could do it, I could do it. But I, I, I mean, I had that thought to a certain degree, but like I've never kind of like been like, oh, I like like I need for there to be a first in order for me to do something right. the like I kid you not like it felt like every day I'm sure it was probably like once a month maybe even once a year my mom would always say to me Terrence what are you going to be the first black and, and I was a kid yeah what and so I was always taught to be a trailblazer so I never really ascribed to that like oh Obama did it now we can all do it that's not been my my reality that's not been the way that i was raised i was raised to be a leader and to be the first of whatever um but when when donald trump did it i was like damn if that idiot could be president why can't i truthfully and, and, and that speaks exactly to what you're saying he was a great marketer absolutely and actually i'll give him credit for that in his career he's one of the most brilliant marketer businessman of all time that guy was worth minus 750 million dollars at one point right. and became a billionaire yeah he did that because he's a brilliant marketer him, him and, and the kardashians exactly dude yo, <laughs> the kardashians <laughs> yo this by the way different context very different same wavelength yeah. man 100 percent. and that's that's the thing about society and part of that is a shot at society mm -hmm. we are I think you know what I actually think it was Steve Bannon that said this first who's a, kind of a crazy person but he was right about this one thing. I remember reading that he said back in like when Breitbart was still alive mm -hmm. he was like everything's downstream from culture. And he was 
dead ass right about that mm. because what we proved is that even the Oval Office is downstream from culture. Mm. You can elect the guy who was a reality TV star who, you know, was trying to fuck models. Right. Right? Like right. that's that's what we did. Right. And so now, like you hear people calling for The Rock to run for president. Right. No, seriously. I like The Rock a lot. Or Kanye. <laughs> or Kanye. Come on. You had an episode on Kanye. You can't throw you I can't, love Kanye. <laughs> you can't I, leave him out of me. this conversation. If Kanye were sitting right across from me, I would say, bro, you are a fucking genius. When Kanye when sits Kanye right across, across from, you. from me. I like how you're thinking. Come on. Like thinking. You're, I'm, I'm you're your looking out for Come me. on. I'm saying, when he sitting across from me, I'll be like, I fucking love you. Yeah. You understand there's no planet where I, where I would ever vote you for president. Yeah, yeah. And like, I'd love to see how he answered that. Because it's like, it also takes like a certain, and this could be a negative too. It takes a certain type of person. Like, there's a lot of negatives to that. But it's also, you have to have some level of pragmatism to mm-hmm. you. Like a pure creative, you know, I wouldn't vote Michelangelo president. <laughs> right. You know, the guy who painted the Sistine Chapel. Sure. That's the guy who's constantly looking at, well, what if I did that? You know what I mean? Right. And in a way, like you have that, to be decisive. Yes, Afghanistan proved that. Yes, and so with Trump, he was a marketer, but he was also like this. No, nope, this is how I'm going to do it. <laughs> and like, if there is one thing, and not to turn the topic here, but let's turn the fucking topic. We're always turning topics. Yeah. If there is one thing that I think will be very interesting to see in the context of history as to who comes after him and what they try to do, mm. one positive about Trump that was also a huge negative for him just depended on the situation is that he didn't give a fuck. Mm. So all of these established orders of business and government, all these agencies, these bureaucracies who are used to, Hey, we were here before you got here. We're going to be here after you leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kind of had nothing to lose with them and it hurt him, you know, telling the CIA to go fuck themselves probably doesn't help you, but it also made him, it it also helped him at least point out that we do have some problems right. with groupthink there. Right. You know? And, and that's so, why Drain the Swamp became such a big slogan. Took the words out of my mouth. Yep. And so, I, I mean, as far as you look at it, we've gone back to the established order kind of right now. And, and in a way- For now. It, for now. <laughs> for now. In a way, I get that. Yeah. But looking long term here, I do think about- the power of bureaucracies mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. and like the unknown things. And you're always someone who's advocating for the rights of individuals and the sure. freedom and things like that. And I don't think that stops. And in fact, I know it doesn't stop with just like rights based on who you are as a human, not the color of your skin, not right. your gender, whatever. It also goes to all of us like, what are our rights in the eyes of a government body? Yeah, what are yeah. our rights in our own home? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously you've seen a lot during COVID and everything, but you can tie it all the way back to like what Edward Snowden pointed out, what the government was doing. And now you look at a guy like Trump who went into drain the swamp, kind of left a part of the swamp, in my opinion. Right. And now we're full swamp again. And it's like, is that going to affect our agency as individuals in the future. Right. I don't know. So I, I don't know about the agency, but I'll tell you this. Um, one thing that I'm definitely excited for is this new generation to come into power and, and, and kind of like the old generation to, to, to phase out because the one thing that excites me about this new generation that's coming up, right? I have, um, I'm the oldest of my siblings. My youngest siblings are twins. They're 15 years old. So I kind of get a, a, a taste of yes. that culture, that 15 year old culture is that they're so politicized right now. 
because of mm. of the media and everything it's so far reaching whether it be TikTok or Instagram or Facebook whatever their social media of choice they have it in front of them so they're forced to think about topics that we weren't thinking about uh, until college, they're thinking about it in middle school. My siblings knew about Trump and Obama and the importance of their presidencies at such a young age that it's interesting and it's fascinating. And I'm excited about this new generation to come in and 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 be disruptors. Honestly, that's what they are. You, uh, I haven't watched the documentary, but I've seen commercials for the one uh, with Greta, the the young. Uh, I think she's Russian, maybe or Siberian. <laughs> I think I think she's Swedish or something. Swedish, yeah. very far off. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, an advocate at a very young age, and I and I apologize for not knowing. And again, I don't really know much about her story. Um, I haven't watched her um, her um, her um, document. <laughs> I haven't watched her I documentary. Never get over that. <laughs> um, I haven't watched her documentary, and I don't know much about her story. But from the commercials that I've seen on Hulu, because I get commercials because I pay for the cheapest subscription as possible, um, the commercials that I've seen, I've seen that she is advocating on a international platform from an extremely young age. And I'm not sure that when we were that age, we saw that as much. And so oh, we didn't. No. We didn't. No. There's 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 no way. I mean the 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 media platforms that were available when we were that age were not the same. And so we have this generation of thinkers and she's not the only one. She's just the first sure. one that comes to my mind of of advocates from the ages of middle school who know about these grand things like global warming and know enough about them to draw the attention of even adults. Yes. Who are willing to disrupt the culture and are willing to say, we understand that's how it's always been, but this is the way that we think it should be. The the ability to have that thought process at an age like that, I can only imagine once they get to the age of 35, which is the age that you can run for presidency. See, I think it's I think I'm kind of good with it too because I think I, there, I think there's good and bad, and I there's think we're, bad. I think we're gonna have to root it out. So like with her, I see both because her general position of global warming, I agree with. I think that, again, I don't know it. I I think that the way that she goes about the extremism of some of it, I don't. And then I have to remind myself, oh, she's fucking thirteen. Mm. And I think I think she's also talked about she has like Aspergers or something, which probably <laughs> makes her a either. genius, by the way. Yeah. But it's like you know there can like some of the explanation of like the aggressive personality on it that makes sense right. in that way. Right. But. It's interesting to me because the idea that like a 13-year-old is going to be politically aware is a crazy thought, mm -hmm. but it's true. And, and, you, and, and you it's get true on that. a large scale. Yeah. It's true on a large scale. I mean, you want to talk about cancel culture? I There's no doubt in my mind that 13-year-olds are driving that culture. You know what? Actually, I get to tell you right now, you're wrong. Okay. I, I know. I was okay. surprised by All this right. too. All right. I, All right. I was stunned by this too. I would have. I would have said the same thing you did about three weeks ago. So unless this data is wrong, okay, you're wrong. But there was a poll done, and I will. Maybe I'll put this on a story or something because I can't pull it up right now. But I, I've shared it with a bunch of people, so I'm comfortable talking about it. There was a poll done that talked about favoritism of cancel culture mm -hmm. by generation. Mm -hmm. So it had Gen Z. Millennials, Gen X, and Boomers. Boomers obviously was the lowest. The second lowest was Gen Z, mm -hmm. and it was pretty close. The highest by far was Millennials, and it goes to show you what's happened here is – I'd like to see that yeah. because, I, because 
I can say as a person that has seen 15 year olds and I don't know what the Gen Z cutoff, maybe they're the next generation. No, they're, they're okay. They're, I, they're, I figured they're at they the were back end it. of it. Yeah. But what I've seen is that they're, I mean, like my, my siblings and their friends are quick to be like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't like Billie Eilish because she, uh, pretends to be, uh, uh, bisexual so that she can uh, get views and followers and that nature. But realistically, she's heterosexual. These are real things that 14-year-olds are saying. Oh, you're sucking the hope out of me, they're, man. They're, they're, they're saying these things. You know what I mean? And so maybe they're not calling it cancel culture. And I wouldn't be surprised if that survey does not survey 14-year-olds. I mean, that's pretty young maybe they that's do that's a good question to ask maybe i think they, they do. do go younger but okay that is a good so i mean i'd, I'd like to see i would love to see it after this podcast is over just for my own edification because that's my experience again i, I can't i can't speak for all people uh, uh, who are gen z but my experience is that they're actively involved in it then again i will say like i said they're twins one is definitely highly in favor of cancel culture the other twin is highly against it so to your point that's interesting maybe that's that's like almost scientifically weird, but that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, one's a male, one's a female, so I don't know if that plays into it too. Wow, you really fucked me up with that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, and let's. I I do got to look at the ages on that. Sure. Because I don't know if they had a cutoff. That's a great question to ask. So we'll look at it together. That's why you're here. And so, all of you guys go out and look at it too. Yes, please. As always, don't believe everything you hear on here because we're guessing just like you are in some ways. That's right. But I think that the awareness can be good. It's just a question of where do they take it to? Because look, my opinion is, I might even call it extreme in today's culture. It shouldn't be, but it is. I I want everyone to live out there. And when they cross the line of free speech, get rid of them. You know? Mm -hmm. So prime example, I've cited this a million times. I'll cite it. It's a perfect example. Steve Bannon was banned from, I think like all the platforms back in whatever. Okay. Six months ago, something like that. Absolutely should have been. Fully supported it. Because Steve Bannon went across free speech. He called for the direct harm Mm. and death Mm -hmm. to public individuals in a visual way with a platform. That's not free speech. That's violence. Sure. So my thought is you give everyone from the farthest left to the farthest right a platform. And then the minute they, they actually cross it, you take it down. Which is why I also had a problem with the Trump one because I don't know if you read the... First of all, I, I think the slippery slope of banning a president from a platform is enormous. I, I literally think there should be a higher standard there for them doing it, but that's a separate issue. If you actually read why they banned him, it's one of the most comical pieces of literature I've ever read in my life. Mm. They, Twitter can read minds, apparently. They admitted it to me in in their in their argument and again this is a prime example of where you're making me defend trump right i shouldn't have to (laughs) dude i want people who who say moronic things right where i can see them right that's where i want them yeah and now i can't see it but you know what i want them right there and so i see this with the culture of people trying to say like certain things should go as certain things shouldn't if it crosses that line of violence get it the fuck out of here because Mm. crazy people follow crazy things right right but if it is is terrorism i mean let's call it what it is is, and i know that's what you're what you're getting at that's 100 i don't like to go extreme but i will call it that because i mean it it is it is a level of that when when you're inciting violence that is terrorism because basically what you're saying is your platform or your viewpoint or you're saying whatever it is that i don't like about you makes you deserve violence against you 
and thus you should change it, and thus you are using terror to change someone. That's terrorism by fair, definition. Fair. Okay. So let, let's let's call it that, and let's call it what Steve Bannon did a a part of that family right mm-hmm. there. Get rid of it. When people are giving ideas, even if they are hateful ideas, right. which do exist, by right, the way, right, right, a lot of them. Beat them with facts, man. Yeah, I mean, it's just Dude, like I, it's just like uh, interracial marriage is a bro, good example. Prime example. Yeah. If if someone wants to argue against that, do it, man. Do it right in the public square where I can see you, because right. I'm going to beat you in about five seconds, jerking off while I'm doing it. A hundred percent. As a visual, I'm sorry, but right. you know what I mean. It is so easy to beat that argument yeah and yet we cultivated the society that seems to say and i think i think this is what they want to drive but it seems to say oh we don't want to risk that we can't beat a bad argument so let's get rid of it and what they don't see is the slippery slope of that and what that can do and that's how like the red i, I know the the hosts didn't get banned like the two hosts page but like the red scare podcast mm-hmm. which is a left-wing podcast they are, and I'm generalizing here, but they are two feminists who talk to people of all different backgrounds, but they're clearly feminists, and they do have pushback against, like, the overrunning of transgender culture mm-hmm. affecting women. Right. They were banned quietly mm. during the whole banning of, like, all the conservatives and, and Trump during January and whatever. And that is a prime example to me of where does it stop? Where's the line in? And that's all. uh, And realistically, law school, that's really the only thing that you're learning from a uh, legal legal scholar's perspective is they teach you to ask that question. Okay, you believe this thing. Where does it stop? That's what judges are faced with on a daily basis, right? And that's what the Supreme Court has to look at. That's the tough questions that we have in America. We believe in freedom of speech. Where do we want to draw that line? Does it go unlimited? including terrorism do we stop it at terrorism do we stop it a little beforehand these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves as americans and these are the things that we have to think about um and i i can understand all perspectives it's just it's it's incredibly difficult i personally align myself with what you're saying i think terrorism should stop because we don't want to cause harm to other americans at the end of the day big picture under no circumstance should we be trying to bring about violence against other Americans. I think when we get into like racism, it it brings up the question of what is harm? Mm. Is harm only physical? Like you're telling someone else to hurt physically someone else or does harm go with emotions? And that's why it is a slippery slope. And that's why what you said I can agree with is that it's a slippery slope because realistically harm has been done to black people for such a long time. And when you think about, you know, the, the N word, for example, and, and that word affects different people in different ways. Me personally, Terrence, I've, I've never and 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 I can say that it is a rarity. There are no words in the English or any other language that could ever affect me in that way. It's the re- there's no one. But the, you can understand why people feel. differently. But I can understand why people can feel differently. That was going to be my end point. Ter- no, 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 a hundred percent. Terrence Jones, the way that I was raised, the way the man that I am today, the security that I have in myself is such that there's nothing anyone could say to me to ever bring me out of myself 
But that's not to say that the, the same isn't true for someone else. And so where do we draw that line? Do we say that harm can only be uh, uh, physical? Do we say that harm can be emotional? Or do we say we don't care about harm? Free speech is free speech. I say what I want. It's hard. It's really, really difficult. I think if you're on the line of emotional, unfortunately, you do have to deal with it because once you go down that slope, you're done. You're already on the slope. The conversation yeah, is no, the slope. Yeah, no, that's no, that's 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 true. And and it doesn't. By the way, doesn't mean I like it. There's a famous line that a lot of people have said, mm. where it's like, "I may hate everything you say, but I will fight for your right to say, provided right. it right, isn't right, violence." Right, right, right. right. I do agree with that because, like, I saw one. There was like a KKK parade somewhere, like maybe Georgia or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This has got to be like nine, ten months ago, and people on social media of all races, were retweeting the video and dragging it, making fun of it. It was great because it was like, look at these fucking morons in the middle. And they weren't causing any violence. They were just speaking their hate speech at Mm -hmm, the time. mm -hmm. Look at these fucking morons in there. Nothing else needed to be said. Everyone, Anyone with half a brain understood that at the Mm -hmm. time. And I was like, that is a prime example of things working. And it even goes back to like the ACLE. ACLU, Mm -hmm. they started their whole organization, as crazy as this sounds, fighting for the rights of Nazis to do a parade. That was one of the starts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like they – you can't tell me they liked their clients. They didn't. They stand for everything those people don't, but they were saying, okay. You got to find the perfect plaintiff. Yes. At the end of the day or the perfect defendant. You yeah. have to find it, and that's how you, that's how you move the needle. And there's a lot of cases where you'd be surprised what the defendant, who the defendants were, that pushed different social issues in different directions for um, the Supreme Court based off of who they are. And that's what the ACLU is very good at: is finding that, having an end goal, and disregarding who they use to get to that end goal. And, and it, it really is amazing, dude. That that's the perfect spot to end it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, man. I I wait. I waited. I waited to bring you in a little bit. It's like there's certain people on this podcast. You, I'll name a couple names. You, Mike Spear, and Jim DiOrio are people that like my battle is don't bring them in too much. Keep yeah, people wanting more. Yeah. But you're you're fucking awesome, man. And I hope, as I said last time, I hope we have leaders in society who think like you. And even if they're from, you know, we're gonna have people who are from different realms of the political 100%. aisles. You know, 100%. I want to burn down both two parties, but I'm saying like we're always gonna have different opinions regardless of whether it's parties three or four or whatever, yeah. or whatever. I want people who think about people and are willing to listen to different ideas and who are also willing to stand behind beliefs when they have them. Mm-hmm. And you. You check all those boxes. I've known you my whole life, and it's just – it's pretty awesome that we started this podcast for real, for real with you. And, you know, like I said, I'm crazy here. We'll see where this goes, but well, you're coming with me. The truth is that we started the podcast with you, and everyone that comes on this podcast believes in you. And the reason why is because you're not someone that just talks the talk. You look up what you're talking about, and you know what you're talking about, and that's why we're here. At the end of the day, you're a great host. Uh, this podcast is something that I believe in, that hundreds of other people believe in, and we're glad to have someone like you to generate these conversations because without it, people get lost in those cycles, people get lost in those silos, and 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 it's very easy to get lost in America. So I appreciate you. Love you, brother. Dude, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for doing it. Everybody else, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. <laughs>